And now, broadcasting live from the restaurant at the end of the universe, this is the history of the Atlantic world. Hello and welcome. Today's episode is entitled The End of Fortune and is part two of our first series, Rise of the Conquistadors. I am your host, Jesse Wiest, and thank you for listening. Now, a big part of uh, talking about uh, Atlantic history, uh, or any uh, transnational history for that matter, uh, one thing you've got to do uh, effectively um, is talk about cultures and people that are different uh, than your own, uh, foreign to you. And uh, that's not always an easy task, uh, for me at any rate. Uh, It is uh, literally an intellectual exercise that takes me beyond uh, uh, even just simple reading comprehension, I think. You see, I've got to read texts from the pasts that are about people uh, who aren't just different than I am in a way that you and I are different, but uh, are, can be different in ways that are, um, gosh, uh, more fundamental. Uh, they believe different things than I do. They know different things than I do. Uh, obviously, they speak a different language. Uh, and they have radically different religious beliefs, and, and to compound all of this, they live in a completely different time period. And so what I end up doing uh, is a lot of sitting and thinking about these people and cultures after, after I read these texts to try and help me get into their heads a little bit, if I can. Um, and, and that task is made monumentally easier by one simple fact, in, that in many instances, I can compare things I know about the contemporaneous descendants of a of the cultural subjects of my inquiries, if uh, that makes sense. Uh, See, I'm able to visualize, thanks to, for example, say, like a living historian, uh, somebody who who dressed up uh, like a French knight, or or an Aztec high priest, a Congolese king. You know, I I can help, I can see these things a little bit more clearly because there are people, while... While the cultures have obviously radically changed, and gosh, especially in the case of the Aztecs, um, there are, I think, uh, strands of ideas that have have passed down, I guess, through the years. Um, Okay, now with with that idea out out into the ether, uh, let's imagine that I was doing a World War II podcast instead of one on the early modern Atlantic world. And God help us if that were the case. Uh, and now I also want to throw out something something really bad. Uh, just something terrible. 
I want to throw out the idea that uh, what if World War II had ended differently, and as a result of the uh, of this, that by the end of World War II that there were no more Japanese people, um, that all of them were killed uh, by A-bombs or the failure to drop the bomb or really whatever reason you wish to imagine, just a complete genocide. Now, obviously, this is not what happened, but if it did, uh, well, we'd be living in a very different place, wouldn't we? Well, we'd be living in a world without Pokemon. Now, I, myself, could hardly care less, and I, I can hear, I think, some of you now saying, great, no Pokemon. Um, so I'm well aware that you might not care either about this idea, but then again, maybe you do. See, I remember myself, maybe, I don't, I don't remember how old I was when Pokemon came out. I think I was maybe 10 or 12. And now, mind you, I was one of those unfortunate uh, children who, by the time I was 12, I think I was like 12 going on, 25. Uh, but I remember kids younger than me uh, enjoying this new uh, Japanese cartoon or uh, card game or, or the toys or the video games or where the fuck it was. Some combination of all those things. And, and I remember thinking that I was way too old for all of that crap because I was a sophisticated teenager. And I didn't watch cartoons, but I watched things like Conan and The Daily Show uh, and, and SNL. And this was back in the mid-1990s. So we're talking original Craig Kilborn-hosted Thursday night dance party daily shows, just to give you an idea of my age, I guess. Um, now, years later... I began attending college in 2007. I, I was just about to turn 25 years old. And though I was a little older, I was just like all the other kids there in, in one respect, in that I wanted to make some new friends. And so I went to some clubs. And I discovered that years later, you know, a decade after first discovering and then disregarding Pokemon, that basically all of the 18-year-olds, these same little kids from when I was just starting to become a teenager, were still... a obsessed with Pokemon. Okay. So, this wasn't just some stupid little fad for little kids, I thought to myself. This, this is kind of a big deal. And, and so that's why I picked, uh, I guess, this, this topic, Pokemon. I, I want to imagine a world without Pokemon, because, just for a moment, because in a world where all of the Japanese were killed off in a, in a genocide at the end of World War II, then Nobody listening to this podcast would have ever grown up playing with Pokemon cards. Um, you certainly never would have watched any animes either, of any type for that matter. So, so I myself, I never would have come home uh, when I was in high school uh, and watched uh, episodes of Dragon Ball Z with my friends. So I never would have known whether or not Goku ever defeated Frieza. Um, earlier than that, boy, back in the 80s, you know, I never would have recorded any Godzilla movies on my VCR as a child. Uh, nobody ever would have told me that there was a different version of Godzilla versus King Kong where Godzilla wins. I wouldn't own a Toyota Corolla today. I'd have never eaten sushi, so of course I'd have never taken any girls out on any dates to any sushi restaurants. And, and if all of this is true, if all of that were true, I should say, I guess, then how well would I really be able to understand 
the culture of Japan if I was going to go look back at the historical record and try and learn about Japanese people. The title of this episode is The End of Fortune, and, and the subject of today's episode, The Guanche People, uh, leaves us with just such a predicament. There are uh, some individuals living in the world with genetic ancestry from the Canary Islands, actually no one, um, but as a society or a culture, the Guanches are long gone. They are essentially extinct. Disease, warfare, and slavery reduce them to next to nothing, and that's a process that we're going to see repeat itself again and again as we continue to chronicle the history of the Atlantic world. And, uh, this is a tragedy, I, obviously, make no mistake about it, uh, because they are gone, we don't really even get to see the extent of that tragedy. You know, we don't... I don't know what genius ideas might have been launched for the minds of a Canarian genius. I don't know what games might have been invented on the Canaries and brought to the world. I don't know what sort of art or music we would have all seen and heard thanks to the Guanche. But I do know this. We are sorely lacking something beautiful in this world because the Guanche are gone. In the words of the immortal bard himself, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. So for this reason, as well as to honor the dead, let us chronicle their lives and learn what we can. And so before we go any further, we need to start answering a question. Who were the Guanche? Um, who were the people of the Canary Islands? And for starters, I, I think we need to break down the idea that there ever were a like a single people of the Canary Islands, because according to the sources we have, it would be better to talk about the peoples of the Canary Islands instead. See, the residents of each island in the Canaries all spoke a similar language, but each island had its own dialect, and the residents uh, of each could communicate with each other only with some degree of difficulty. Uh, in addition, each island uh, also was broken up into smaller polities, uh, that made up basically the world of the Canary Islands before European contact. Um, and the Guanche people themselves, uh, and I should say, gosh, I can't believe I haven't done this. You know, I, I'm getting better at this. We'll, we'll see. The Canary Islands are an island chain, I should say this, off the coast of Africa. Um, and, and the Guanche people themselves were related to the African Berber people who, who we met last episode, um, and some of whom probably migrated to the islands sometime around uh, in between 6,000 and 1,000 uh, B.C. Uh, uh, 6,000 B.C. is around the time the Sahara starts to uh, desertify, which probably caused some migrations um, at any rate. Uh, we definitely have archaeological evidence of the Guanche living on the Canaries uh, by 1000 uh, BC. And, and now in all of the islands 
the Guanche were pastoralists. Uh, goats especially played a huge role in the lives uh, of the people of the islands, both as a source of food and as a source of clothing. Uh, generally speaking, they were highly athletic, uh, an adaptation suitable for life on the Rocky Mountains of the Canary Islands. And in fact, the Guanche were so well adapted to this lifestyle that they had in, even invented a language called Silbo, uh, whereby the uh, speakers uh, of this language communicated by whistling, uh, and these loud whistles would echo across uh, the, the, you know, the, the valleys, or I guess the, 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 um, the canyons and whatnot of the mountains, and allowed people to communicate across the islands from long distances. Uh, Dan Carlin, and if, if, boy, I, I'm sorry if you are not familiar with Dan Carlin, but you are familiar with my podcast, that is a shame for you. Uh, he would say that I think that the Canary Islanders, the Guanche people, have superpowers, uh, in comparison to uh, normal people. And um, we will see from our U European commentators that they found the Guanche to be of pretty extraordinary strength and agility. Um, and this will enable them to inflict serious harm against uh, many of the would-be conquistadors of the Canary Islands, despite a lack of iron weapons. And in fact, while the Guanche used a variety of different uh, weaponry, all of their, uh, all of their uh, implements of war uh, were quite literally made out of sticks and stones. They were a Stone Age people. Um, and the Guanche have a varied and, and long archaeological record. Um, in their past, in the distant past, they had even uh, evidence exists of a written language um, that the islands were connected to the ancient world. Uh, they were called the Fortunate Islands uh, by the Greeks and the Romans. But by the 14th century, the Guanche were most definitely a Stone Age culture. Now, how exactly that occurred is up for debate, um, and it's beyond the scope of, of this podcast anyway. But I think it is quite possible, uh, and probably even likely, that the disintegration of the Western Roman Empire probably had enormous implications for a tiny island chain on the very, very western edge of the ancient world. Um, that's just something for you to consider, I guess, as we continue on. Um, <clears throat> the islands themselves are seven in number and are known to us now as Faro, Palma, Gomera, Tenerife, Gran Canary, Fortaventura, and Lanzarote. Of these, Palma and Ferro are the most distant from Europe, though they are still only about 100 leagues from Cape Bojador on the African coast. Gomera is the next island in the chain, which is 14 leagues from Palma. And next in the chain after that is Tenerife, after that the Gran Canary, the largest chain in the island. Now, our first guides, and from which... The first of our primary sources, which we will be working with, is uh, uh, Les Canarian, written by Brother Pierre Brontier, monk of Saint Jean de Marne and Jean de Verrier, a priest, both servants of the Monsieur de Bethencourt, a French knight who will begin the com to command the first Atlantic conquest by Europeans in 1402. 
In addition, we will take a look at what the Spaniard, Abreu de Galindo, has to say about the Canary Islands in his History of the Discovery and Conquest of the Canary Islands. Though the bulk of that text, which focuses on later on in the 15th century, will be left to another episode, which is just a couple of, a little bit further down on the pipeline. Uh, um, now, our sources say that, uh, let's go through each of the islands, I guess, yeah. And our sources say that Palma was visited less than the Isler, than the other islands leading up to the 15th century. And so the population of Palma was strong and well-peopled at the start of that century. It was also very politically diverse and contained 12 distinct districts, each governed separately. Despite the political separations, a shared religion also existed on the island, though. Since the middle of each district, there was a great pillar or pyramid of loose stones piled as high as possible, where the people assembled on certain occasions to sing and dance and to offer sacrifices. Um, the, the people of the Canaries, I should say, uh, practiced uh, animal sacrifice, goat sacrifice, I believe. Pharaoh, um, next, though roughly as distant as Palma, was visited more often, and while previously had been extremely inhabited, few remained uh, of the uh, people there at the start of the 15th century due to numerous slave raids. As a result of this, the inhabitants of the island were uh, of a melancholy turn of mind, says Galindo, which was evidently reflected in the subjects of their songs. They fashioned cloaks out of three goatskins, which were reversible. In winter, they wore the woolly side next to their bodies. In the summer, they fashioned, they fashionably, excuse me, sported their wool on the outside. They wore nothing on their heads and wore their hair in very fine braids. Since the island was very rocky, they normally traveled with long wooden poles, which they would use to quickly vault across crevices. Politically, at the uh, during the 15th century, the island was all under the ruler, uh, all under the, the rule of one king or ruler. Now, <clears throat> the people of Gomera were tall and spoke the most remarkable of all the languages of the islands, according to the authors of The Canarian, to which Galindo adds that they were of a lively disposition, very active and dexterous in attacking and defending and excellent slingers of stones and darts, to which exercise they were trained from infancy. He adds that one common amusement amongst the people of the island was to cast stones and darts at one another, to avoid which they seldom moved their feet, but only waved their bodies to and fro, and so expert were they at this sport that they would catch the stones and darts as they flew in the air. The men wore cloaks of goatskins that reached the knee, and the women wore petticoats of the same material, as well as headdresses that went to their shoulders. The women also dyed and painted their petticoats with red and blue dyes from local plants. Politically, the island was divided into four different units. Now, the people of Tenerife had a reputation as the hardiest to be found on the islands, and had never been run down or carried into servitude like those of the other islands. Both men and woman, women there wore sheepskin cloaks, the women's cloaks being longer all the way to their feet, and they wore petticoats underneath. Tenerife is a very rocky island, and the people there developed a language 
based on whistling, which we spoke of called silbo. Um, and it helped greatly as a warning system when the Spanish attacked, since the whistles could be heard at an incredible distance. Now, when someone died, they were taken to a cave on the island of Tenerife. There they were washed and mummified by means of a special powder. Early in the 15th century, it was politically united, but when the king died a few years late before the conquest of the island, it was divided into nine kingdoms for his nine sons, though eight of these paid tribute to the most powerful. Now, the islands of the Grand Canary were also tall, and according to the authors of the Canarian, they looked upon themselves as noble and had none of the lower orders among them, which I think probably suggests a representative type of government decision-making. Now, this is not to say that there, were no, there was no social distinction on Gran Canary, because Abreu de Galindo uh, states that the nobility on the island distinguished themselves by the peculiar cut of their hair and beards. Goats played an integral role as both food and clothing sources on the island, and of course the rest of the Canaries. Only the dregs of the people, though, would work, work as butchers, which seems to have been the result of a religious prohibition. And as a result, uh, the fate of most captured or enslaved would-be conquistadors over the course of the 15th century, because on occasion things worked the opposite way, you know, during warfare, and, 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 and it wasn't just Canarians being captured and enslaved by Spaniards, um, but the captured and enslaved conquistadors, or would-be conquistadors, would be forced to work in the despised role as butchers in the Canaries, uh, and especially on the Grand Canary, according to our sources. And really, I mean, if you think about it, with the sharp iron swords and knives that they brought with them, this is really almost the sort of an idea that almost thinks for itself. You know, you're sitting there, you've got this dirty, stinking Spaniard or Frenchman, and he's just sitting there in front of you. And a few, you know, a few hours ago, he tried to kill you and kidnap your children. And so you're thinking to yourself, you know, I think I'm going to make this son of a bitch do the most disgusting job I can think of. Well, at any rate, uh, the Grand Canary was politically divided into two separate halves. Now, the authors of the Canarian took special note that some people on the island of the Grand Canary wore nothing but a girdle of palm leaves around them, while others seemed to have preferred wearing animal skins around their middle. And most of them printed various designs on their bodies according to their tastes, and wore their hair tied behind in the fashion of tresses. They are a handsome and well-formed people. Their women are very beautiful, says Galindo. I agree. The idea of ladies wearing nothing but palm leaf girdles and body paint is actually one I find very attractive. In addition to being beautiful, they were very fond of hazardous enterprises, such as climbing to the top of steep precipices, to pitch poles of so great a weight that one of them was a sufficient burden for a man of common strength to carry on level ground, and which... The Spaniards affirm that the devil assisted them in placing these poles, that if they themselves would try such a task, they would fall down off the mountain headlong and be destroyed. The Spanish conquistadors were brave in many ways, but they were terrified of the X-Games-like atmosphere of Grand Canary athletic competitions. Uh, and I, I mean, it is a, a terrifying idea, I think, you, you know, 
running up a mountain with a you know a four by four in your hands that you're gonna plant in a hole in a post hole at the top of the mountain is it's a difficult task. Um, on the island of Fuerteventura, uh, prospective conquistadors found another very tall people, difficult to take alive and formidable in battle, according to our sources. Perhaps this battle prowess owed to the people of Fuerteventura being of a resolute character, very firm in their religion. The island had numerous villages, and the culture of uh, Fuerteventura may have been somewhat more urban than most of the other Canary Islands, or, or all of them, since the people there lived more closely together than other islands in the chain. They wore jackets of sheepskin and short breeches as well that left the knee bare. They wore high caps and shoes that were also made of sheepskin leather. The people of Fuerteventura and also of Lanzarote, says Galindo de Abreu, were fond of singing and dancing and took great delights in games involving leaping and jumping, including one game that involved two men, each holding one end of a pole as far above their heads as they could reach, while a third attempted to run and jump over that pole. The most skillful participants could supposedly leap over three such poles successively in what was a Canarian version of the track and field sport hurdling. Now, finally, Lanzarote uh, itself, the people there, uh, contained uh, many villages and fair houses uh, and had suffered up to the 15th century, much like the people of Pharaoh had. The Spaniards and other corsairs of the sea, having so frequently made capture of them and thrown them into slavery, that now there are but few remaining, said the authors of the Canarian, speaking at the start of the 15th century. They wore goat skins sewn together and fashioned like a hooded cloak that reached down to their knees. And the seams of this habit was closed with thin tongs of leather as fine as thread. Their shoes and bonnets were also made of goat skins. The king of Lanzarote, and the the Europeans are very fond of calling all these guys, I'm not sure, and, and none of us really are, I don't think, Is um, are there monarchies on these islands? Is, is this some other form of chiefdom? And, and I say that the Europeans were very familiar with the idea of a king ruling them, the people of Spain, and, and, and so they see a ruler, uh, they might have just called him king. I, 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 what I mean to say is, is I don't know that this necessarily means we're having uh, um, a rule, you know, somebody's son, a monarchical, monarchical rule, I guess, where somebody's son takes over as soon as they, they die and becomes king. But at any rate, okay, the king of Lanzarote wore a crown, which was made of goat leather, and adorned with seashells in order to distinguish himself from his subjects. Um, when someone died on the island, they were buried in a cave. The body was stretched out, covered over, under and above by goatskins. Now, to the ancients, the Canary Islands were known as the Isles of Fortune. And today, the Canary Islands name derives from Pliny the Elder's name for the largest chain in, in, in or the largest, excuse me, island in the chain. I don't know the exact circumstances that led to the ex 
uh, loss of contact with the Canary Islands, like I said, but it probably had something to do uh, with the fall of the Roman Empire. And I say this because by the medieval period, the concrete knowledge of the Canary Islands that is possessed by Greek and Roman writers is replaced uh, by imagination. Um, in the medieval uh, era, Europeans were writing about uh, Merlin might have lived there. It might have been Elysium, where the, the Hellenistic earthly paradise. Um, uh, as far as the Muslim world uh, went, um, I, I don't know what they thought specifically of of the Canary Islands. I didn't really research, but that, that's partly because they didn't really think of them much at all. Um, the Arabs didn't put much emphasis on exploration of the Atlantic after forcibly converting the Berbers, and, and I mean, why would they? The Arabic language at that point was spoken from Southeast Asia to the Mediterranean. There was no need or desire to explore or to travel about the dangerous Atlantic since they controlled basically almost every single major trade route through Eurasia and, and, and the Saharan caravans that went into Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, Arabic shipping that was bound for travel into the Atlantic world would have logically gone into the North Atlantic for trade with Europe. Um, so, on the other hand, Italian merchants did sometimes head south, using one of the currents of the Atlantic Ocean, now named the Canary Current, to try and circumvent the Muslim control of these trade routes. The Vivaldi brothers did just that in the year 1291, leaving in galleys from Genoa and heading south to Africa on their way to, quote, to the regions of India by way of the ocean, unquote. Now you might ask how the Vivaldi brothers knew that they could head south and go around Africa and get to India. And that's a great question. Um, and I'll answer you by saying that the Vivaldi brothers did not know that. Um, they were operating instead under the common European assumption that the Nile was basically a magical river that looked like an upside-down capital T. And through this, they were just going to sail through the middle of Africa, right into the Indian Ocean. Now, with that said, the regions of India, the Vivaldi were trying to uh, find, refers to the fact that during the medieval period, the... Uh, European mind actually conceived of four different Indias in the world, uh, and one of which was Ethiopia, which was actually in Africa. So, which really, frankly, explains a lot of why everyone in Europe was quite content to call the Americas the West Indies. Uh, now, as for the Vivaldi brothers, they were never seen from again. Though, as for their exact fate, I think we should leave that aside just for now. Now, uh, the expedition of the Vivaldi is the only one that I'm aware of uh, in, the, in, the, in the 13th century, uh, an early 14th century, I guess. But there must have been others seeking wealth through trade with Africa. And at least one of these expeditions must have rediscovered the Canary Islands. And, and that much is clear from no less a source than the so-called father of the Renaissance, Petrarch. 
who claimed that armed Genoese ships had visited the Canary Islands, and that by 1337, he even claimed to be almost as knowledgeable about them as he was about France or Italy. Now, time, scant records, and various fires over the centuries have concealed exactly how he got the funding to do so. But a Genoese named Lanzarato Malosello was, if not the first conquistador to visit the islands, then amongst the earliest. Malosello built a castle on one of the islands, which eventually eventually became known as Lanzarote, though, uh, and, and though his exact purpose remains unclear to us today, it isn't too hard to divine roughly what his plans were. Conquest, enslavement, and trade. We just basically don't know in what order. What we do know about Malosello's visit is that it sailed under the auspices of the Portuguese crown, and thus, if the actions of Henry the Navigator, uh, who ruled, or who was a prince a generation later, if, if we were to take his actions as a guide, that would have included financial support, which would explain Malosello's capability to build a castle. Um, but we also know that it was commanded by Malosello himself, a Genoese, and while sailing under a Portuguese flag, the c- crew contained numerous personnel from various parts of Spain, and most of the crew was Castilian. And this is the so-called footloose manpower that uh, resides throughout Iberia, but is concentrated at its greatest in Castile, uh, which really explains more than anything else why Spain uh, will come to such prominence in the, in the New World, I guess. Uh, now, Malosello's voyage is probably the one I think that uh, that Petrarch is is talking about. I get, or he maybe Petrarch visited or got some accounts from Malosello, but those are gone. Um, now, now shortly afterwards, uh, four no fewer than four excuse me voyages were sponsored from the island of Majorca in 1342 to the Canaries in search of dragon's root and slaves. And by 1351, two missionaries, uh, Jean Doria and Jaume Segara, voyaged under papal bull by Clement VI with 12 Spanish-speaking natives who had been previously captured, and at least five further missionary expeditions left to the Canaries between 1352 and 1386. And so as a result of all of this stuff, um, the Canaries start to become more and more defined on European maps of the era. Uh, So too, uh, by the way, does Madeira and some of the other islands we're going to be talking about in this uh, this series, but uh, they are uninhabited and we're going to spend a lot less time there at first and we're not really going to talk about Madeira at all, except I do will, will just want to point out real quick that Madeira, Madeira may have occasionally been used by Europeans for gathering lumber at this time. Um, now, besides the fact that slavers and missionaries were visiting the Canaries during the 14th century, we also know that the island chain was becoming a focal point of tension between Portugal and Spain. Malocello, by the time of his death, wrote Quote, the enduring war he waged against the Castilians and Canarians um, was, was something he was waging. God, that's a terrible sentence. Um, I apologize. You know, I, 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 I work off 
uh, of a script here, and, and not everything I say is on the script. Uh, you might be able to tell that. But at any rate, uh, and I try and do a decent job of, of editing this, but good grief. Sometimes I apologize, people. Uh, you, you'd think that a professional would just edit all of this out, but instead I think I'll just tell you um, what just happened there. Yeah, this is just a bad sentence. I blame the editor, who I think might be on vacation. Now, okay, so. So, Malicello is complaining about, what he might be complaining about might just be nothing more than slaving ventures, uh, but just not Portuguese-sponsored slaving ventures. But by 1390, a civilian merchant named Gonzalez uh, Perez de Martel asked for royal permission for an attempt at conquering the islands. Martel accomplished almost nothing, except to see some slaves on the island of Lanzarote, which is the Spanish version of the island named after Lanzarote, Malicello. Um, and he returned, but he did return to Castile, uh, touting the ease with which the Canarians would be conquered. And this misperception would have deadly consequences for numerous would-be conquistadors. And, and it's in this environment, after no less than a century of uh, frequent ravages by slavers, that two French knights, Godifer de La Salle and Jean de Bethencourt, both of whom had connections by, through marriage to the Sevillian, Sevillian, excuse me, Las Casas family of slave traders, uh, they would achieve a permanent European presence on the Canaries, complete with a new castle since Malicelos had apparently uh, been abandoned after his death. And it is of their expedition that we get access to our first primary source, uh, Les Canarian, written by brother uh, Pierre Brontier, monk of Saint-Jean-de-Morne, and Jean Le Verrier, uh, a priest, uh, both of whom are servants of the aforesaid Bethencourt, uh, both before and during the conquest. And, and I just want to make sure we mention that because another, you know, as an aside, everything, one thing that's really important about history, and I'm always going to try and do my best to, to tell you this, um, I when we're, we're going to look at, at sources here, and sometimes especially early on in, in the 14 and 1500s, we're not going to have a lot of sources. And, and so it's very important that we bear in mind who our sources are uh, so we're aware of whatever biases they might have. And um, some sources are definitely better than others, but... Um, at any rate, I just I, I just uh, I mentioned that uh, several times because because I it, I do think it is important. Now, briefly before we get into the details of the of the conquests of Jean de Bethencourt, I have a few quick points I just want to make uh, uh, that we can learn uh, from the Canarian uh, re uh, related to this. Um, now, first. Um, one thing we learned from the Canarian, I think, is that the economy of the early European colonies was basically geared towards slaving, raiding the African coast, and victualling ships, which were largely engaged in these same activities as well. And there were secondary markets that included obtaining luxuries um, that were rare in Europe, such as sealskins, orkil, and dragon's blood root. Uh, th those are the main... Uh, the main 
uh, desired goods on the Canaries besides uh, slaves and the land itself, I guess I should say, as well. Um, now, second, besides that, the authors of the Canarian show uh, how Europeans kind of struggle a little bit um, figuring out how they're going to justify an unjust war against pagan peoples. Now, in the medieval period, the right of pagan peoples to undisturbed sovereignty um, was a, a debated issue within the Christian world, in fact, much debated. Um, but the idea that it was okay for a bunch of knights to simply conquer them was not okay. Um, so the authors of the Canarian used two tactics to justify the attempted conquest. Sometimes the Canarian, uh, the Canarians, I should say, the Guanche, are shown as having no beliefs at all and engaging in beastly behavior that would put them outside the realm of natural law, and thus, you know, it's okay, you know, they need to be conquered. And at other times, our authors give the Canarians attributes of the Muslims, such as when Bethancourt and his men first arrive at Lanzarote and meet with the, quote, Saracen king of the island. Or later, when the two Saracen kings of Fuerteventura surrender and convert to Christianity. And this might seem a little paradoxical, you know, but in part, it's because I think they're trying to figure it out. But yeah, war against Muslims was by nature a just war is why they're trying to call them uh, Muslims. And, and since that is what Christians and Muslims, especially in Spain and Portugal, have been doing to each other for centuries, conquering each other, going to war with each other, it, 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 that, it kind of makes a little sense almost that they would say uh, if that give um, attributes of, of Muslims to to the Canarians sometimes. Now, one last point I just want to keep in mind is that uh, LaSalle and Bethancourt would have preferred to create a French fife out of the Canaries, and especially if we were to believe our sources. Um, but from the start, they discovered that if they were going to have any success at an attempt at conquering the Canary Islands, they were going to need substantial help from Castile. From the beginning, the mission was seriously underfinanced. Bethancourt had to sell substantial amounts of property in Paris, and even then he had to borrow heavily um, to finance the attempt. But this wasn't apparent to him or, or Gadifer, however, when they departed on May the 1st, 1402, according to the authors of Le Canarian with, quote, a very good ship, well provided with men, victuals, and everything requisite for the voyage, unquote. Bethencourt's expedition was met with immediate misfortunes after this. A foul wind brought them to a Spanish port where they were stayed for eight days, and while there, the crew began fighting. And in fact, there was such great disagreement amongst the crew that the entire expedition nearly came to nothing. It just almost fell apart right then and there before Bethancourt and Gadifer uh, finally succeeded in quieting them. Finally departing again, the party stopped uh, at La Rochelle, where Bethancourt had business and discovered the people there were uh, stripping many of the fittings off of a ship which had been captured. Now, our authors didn't know from whom, but Bethancourt uh, is a man, as we will see here and many times after this, is a man... Uh, 
more than willing uh, to to take any advantage he can. Um, he begged the local earl of uh, of La Rochelle if he could partake in the looting of this ship, and upon receiving consent, um, caused an anchor and a boat to be brought aboard his own vessel. Now, this seems to have caused some controversy when another uh, local nobleman found out and demanded Bethencourt return the boat and anchor. Um, Bethencourt argued uh, that he had permission, and when that didn't work, told the nobleman in question that basically he was happy to return the anchor and boat, but he was very busy, and so he was going to have to come get it himself. Uh, now, the, the nobleman in question, as you might imagine, was not very happy with this answer, and so he replied that, he would, that they would be brought back to him today, or he would take other steps, and faced with this threat of legal or possibly not-so-legal action, Bethencourt replied, quote, Take them if you will, for we have something else to do, unquote. Immediately after saying this, Bethencourt ordered the anchors lifted and set sail. Agents of the by now absolutely furious lord in question manned a boat and followed within speaking distance, our Catholic chroniclers report, and, quote, much was said that would be tedious to relate, unquote. Shortly afterwards, they landed at Cadiz and were detained for suspicion of piracy. La Salle was forced to appear in Seville to be examined by the royal council because a consortium of Genoese, Placentian, and English merchants who were residing in Seville had brought accusations that Bethencourt's party were robbers and had sunk three ships and taken and pillaged all the contents. Now, Bethencourt was able to easily persuade the council that it was certainly not his ship that was marauding the pirates, the waters of pirates. But while he was gone doing that, the crew debated mutiny again. Now, some of the sailors argued that they had too little food and that they were being brought out to die. Out of the 80 men on the ship, 27 departed robbing the expedition of over a quarter of its strength before even arriving at the Canaries. Now, when they finally did arrive at Lanzarote, the Monsieur de Bethencourt went on shore himself and personally led the first attack against the inhabitants of the island, and in so doing made great efforts to capture some of the people of the Canaries, but without success, for as yet he did not know the country. Now, after this clumsy attempt, Bethencourt asked Gadifer and some of the other nobles what should be done, and it was determined that they should spread themselves over the country and not leave until they had encountered some of the natives. And once this was being done, some of the Canarians did indeed come down from a mountain and parlayed with the conquistadors, and a meeting was set up between what the chroniclers of the Canarian called the Saracen King. From, uh, from this... Bethencourt promised his protection from those who should harm them. Now, this promise was left unkempt, uh, says the authors of the Canarian. The subterfuge of pretending to befriend the natives uh, to protect them against the slavers who'd been plaguing them for the past century um, was used by Bethencourt to give him and his men the time needed to build the castle, which they called Rubicon on the southeast of the island of Lanzarote. And from here, the conquistadors proceeded to dominate the island, launching raids with impunity against the native population in what Fernandez Armesto called the classic pattern of Norman conquest. 
After the construction of the castle, Bethencourt advised with La Salle that an expedition should go to the island of Fuerteventura by night. Accordingly, this was done, and Gadifer, with a company of men, pushed on as far as they could until they came to a mountain where there was, fresh spring, where there was a fresh spring running. And though they made great efforts to find their enemies, they were much vexed that they could not fall in with them. The natives, apparently, had left for the other side of the island as soon as they had seen the ship, and after eight days, Gadifer and the company were obliged to return for want of bread. Afterwards, Gadifer and the other knights then held a council and determined their plan of action. Uh, they planned then to go by land to the shore, uh, along the shore, to a nearby river uh, called the Vin de Palme and encamp at its mouth. Then the ship was to haul in as close as possible, send them their provisions on shore, and they would fortify themselves at that point and not leave the country until the country should be conquered and the inhabitants brought to the Catholic fate. This is what a great plan, really. However, one Robin Le Brumet, captain and master mariner of Gadifer's ship, wasn't going to have any of that. And if you are curious as to why this might be the case, then I will refer you back to my introductory episode about pirates, which will alert you to the likely causes of the issues between the Gadifer, the Lord Gadifer, or, and Bethencourt, for, and, and their sailors, very much not noble. Brumet would neither tarry nor receive either Gadifer or his companions on board. Instead, the sailors informed Gadifer that he and his men were not to board the ship in greater numbers than there were sailors on board, and further, that they would be taking hostages as collateral for ferrying them back from Fuerteventura to Lanzarote. As a result, Gadifer and his bastard son Hannibal had a very bad day and were forced as hostages onto the ship's boat, forced to sit alongside his larger ship to make sure he and his men didn't cause trouble on the way to Lanzarote. The authors of Canarian write that Gadifer was in great heaviness, that he was debarred the use of his own property. Oh, I bet. I'd be pissed. Now, once everyone did reconvene at Lanzarote, at the Castle Rubicon, Bethencourt and Gadifer were faced with the reality that many of the seamen who were, quote, very evilly inclined, showed impatience to get away. Now, these were not to be confused, mind, confused, mind you, with the several seamen who, being of slightly less evil inclination, merely wanted to raise. <laughs> just kidding about that, of course. That's just that last part. Um, at any rate, Bethencourt took the advice of Gadifer and the other nobles and resolved to return with said evilly inclined seamen to satisfy their requirements and to return as possible with fresh men and victuals. And so the remaining provisions were put on shore, except that was required for the return voyage. And there really must, been, must have been quite a feud going on here uh, between Bethencourt and Gadifer on the one hand and the crew on the other, uh, because according to the Canarian, the soldiers put ashore the provisions while simultaneously, quote, doing as much damage as they could to the artillery and other things which would afterwards have been of great service, unquote. Now, I think it's possible, with that said, that these sailors were just pissed off that they were being 
ordered to debark the cannons off the ship in the first place. I mean, after all, on the way over here, hadn't they themselves been questioned uh, 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 over the loss uh, to pirates of three civilian ships on their journey to the Canaries from France? And here you're wanting me to go back through undefended, where there still might be pirates? Uh, okay. Uh, anyway, uh, who knows? Some possibility of reasons could have been... Uh, uh, we're left to our imaginations to the exact cause of the trouble. Um, now, Bethencourt assured them that he should make every effort to return as soon as possible and left with the sailors for Spain. Now, Bethencourt and, and Gadifer had placed great confidence in an energetic nobleman from Cow in Normandy named Burton de Berneval. And the two named him as their lieutenant and governor of the island of Lanzarote, and of the company. And when, but when Bethencourt left, Berneval proceeded to do all the harm he could, and acted very treasonably. In fact, Berneval was likely behind much of the fighting and disagreement amongst the crew when the voyage had first left and nearly fallen apart, since the Canarian states at La Rochelle that he Quote, attached himself to partisans and made allies of a great number of people. And shortly after, through him, there arose a great dissension between the Normans and the Gascons. And truth to say, this burthen did not at all like Monsieur Gadifer and sought to do him in despite every means. Unquote. Now, while... Back, 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 we can go back. While the, the party had been in Spain still, but while they were fighting for the eight, day, eight days, things had apparently even gotten so heated at one point that during the arguing and fighting, um, two darts were thrown at Gadifer while his son Hannibal was helping him put on his armor, one of which passed between them and stuck into a chest behind them. Uh, during this confrontation, a number of sailors had darts and iron bars all ready to throw, and it was only through much trouble that the tumult was appeased. From that time on, says the authors of the Canarian, commenced plots and dissensions amongst the crew, which grew to such an extent that before the ship left Spain, they had lost 200 of their ablest men. Unquote. The authors of the Canarian go so far as to claim that if only they had remained loyal, Bethencourt would have already been lord of the Canary Islands, thus making Berneval the great villain of the story. And I'm not so sure myself if, if all of the blame uh, can be placed on Berneval. Now, Berneval is a ruthless an ambitious, not ruthless—he's a terrible person. Uh, ruthless and ambition, and ambitious, and he uses those traits to the detriment of the company, and and that's for certain. But I'm not sure his wasn't just a crime of opportunity, and and what I what I mean by that is that everyone who'd gotten onto that boat in the first place, Bethencourt and Gadifer included, were a bunch of ruthless, ruthless cutthroats who willing to kill and enslave for profit. So if you take out Berneval and insert uh, another whichever conquistador might have been put in his place, I think you, it's possible that you end up with the very same result, is all I'm saying. 
And I guess my argument against Berneval being solely responsible for the inability of Bethencourt to conquer the entirety of the islands boils down to this. Uh, was, wasn't Berneval the exact type of person who Bethencourt and Gadifer had recruited for this operation in the first place? I mean, sometimes you get what you pay for. And as a quick aside, uh, unlike the authors of the Canarian, a priest and a monk, uh, remember, I, I don't have any problem realizing that the strength and power of the Canarian resistance itself was what was preventing Bethencourt from taking over the islands as a whole. But these guys are, are clearly struggling a little to understand um, how they could possibly be having trouble with these pagans. Dying in battle against Muslims was acceptable and understandable within the context of this society. Being killed by Stone Age barbarians was something entirely else. Um, now, Bethencourt had charged Berneval before his departure to obey Monsieur Gadifer, whom Bethencourt looked upon as a good knight and a man of judgment. But once he returned to Spain, there arose great quarrels and dissensions between the two. But the real trouble didn't arrive until a ship from Spain arrived from Lobos. Or, excuse me, arrived at Lobos. See, Berneval, and Lobos, mind you, is a, is a very, very tiny island uh, in, in the Canary chain, uh, so small that it's uninhabited. That's why it hasn't been mentioned so far. Berneval believed he recognized the ship, and thus its captain whom thus he would have known, and so he went to visit and discovered it was a different ship than the one he knew, though that didn't stop him from going along with his treacherous plan anyways. He proposed to the ship's captain, Francisco Calvo, and his crew that they take along Berneval and 30 of the men who were loyal to him from the fort to go on a slave-taking expedition. Now, to be clear, what Berneval is suggesting is basically is mutiny, plain and simple. Calvo reminds him of this when he answers no. Quote, it did not beseemeth to him to suggest such a thing, and they would not consent to such a great wickedness as to be so disloyal to knights such as Bethencourt and Gadifer, unquote. Berneval, though, had better luck with some of the other conquistadors on the Canaries, arguing that these men should forsake Bethencourt and Gadifer and instead look after their own welfare, advancement, and honor. Now, meanwhile, Gadifer, in, quote, no ways suspecting that Berthen de Berneval, who was of noble lineage, would be guilty of any baseness, quote, set sail with several others in a boat and left Rubicon for the tiny, uninhabited island of Lobos in order to procure seal skins and to make some shoes for the crew. And there they remained until at last their provisions ran out. And at the same time, Gadifer sent another man named Remonet de Lenedin to procure some food from Rubicon, since they only had enough for two days. Now, during Gadifer's absence, Berneval remained busy, and Remonet, upon his arrival, discovered that Berneval and his confederates had departed to a port on the, at the island of Graciosa to meet with a second ship, which had arrived from Spain as soon as Gadifer had left from Lobos, 
And to these men, Berthen told a number of lies, promising to the captain and crew that if they would join him and his companions, that in return, Berneval would capture forty of the best men on the island of Lancerot, who would be worth two thousand francs, and deliver them to the master of the vessel. Obtaining the consent of this captain, Berneval then returned to the castle Rubicon. Shortly afterwards, two native Canarians came to the Rubicon, to report that a Spanish that the Spanish had landed in order to capture them. Berthen promised speedy assistance, and holding a lance, proclaimed to the Canarians, quote, I will go and speak with these Spaniards, and if they interfere, I will kill them, or they will kill me, and I pray God that if I do not effect my purpose, I may never return, unquote. Now, the Canarians had no idea that Berthen had already met the Spaniards in question aboard their ship and that they were in league together. His treachery remained unsuspected by the Canarians when he traveled to the Canarian village of Great Alde, where he found some of their chiefs and said to them, Go and fetch hither your king and his retinue, and I will protect them completely against the Spaniards. Berneval had his interpreters, two Canarians, make supper for the royal guests, and afterwards told them to sleep in peace and fear nothing, for I will protect you. Once he saw that they were asleep, he placed himself before their doors with his drawn sword in hand and had them all taken and bound. Only one man named Evago managed to escape, and Berthen now plainly saw that he was discovered and could capture no more took his departure, and took the prisoners with him, and made straight for the Spanish boat. When the Canarian king found himself in this situation, he became outraged. And he did something that you really can't imagine very many of his counterparts uh, back in Europe uh, being capable of, uh, really of any time period almost. Quote, being a brave and powerful man, he burst his bonds and broke away from the three men who had him in their charge. Unquote. The king of Lanzarote started to escape, and one of Berthen's men followed, but the king turned around most fiercely upon him, and dealt him such a blow that none of the rest dared approach him. This was the sixth time he had delivered himself from the hands of the Christians with his own prowess. Berthen now had only twenty-two poor innocent people as prisoners whom he thus delivered to the Spanish for sale into perpetual slavery in foreign lands. While on the ship, Berthen also sent some of his allies back to the Rubicon, and this is where they saw Gadifer's boat and met with Remonet, and there, who was there to obtain supplies, remember. Berthen's men seized Gadifer's boat, and when Remonet went to recover it, one of the conspirators, known to history as the Bastard de Blessy, drew his sword and would have killed Remonet on the spot, except that the other conspirators pushed the boat offshore and cried out, If any one of Gadifer's men dares to lay hands on the boat, we will put him to death, even though, back on Lobos, Gadifer and his men should never eat another mouthful. When Remonet pleaded again that Gadifer was on Lobos to make shoes for the men, and that he would starve if not provided with victuals, he was again rebuffed. Quote, Spare your breath. We will do nothing of the sort until Berthen and all his men are safe aboard the Tajamar. Unquote. 
the Taj Amor being the name of the Spanish ship with which Burthon had conspired. And uh, I... Uh, it, uh, and while I'm not mad, I think this is just great. The, the, these two boats, uh, the Marella and the Tajamar, <clears throat> I, I think it's really neat. That what the, the basically, the Tajamar tra basically translates into, uh, I guess, sea cutter, um, ocean cutter, something like that. And uh, and the Marella uh, literally translates into the sea lady or the the, the woman of the sea, the sea woman. Um, knowing what we know about sailors, uh, Marea in, in 15th century Spanish slang is, is clearly the name of that Spanish ship is Sea Bitch. And I think that's just, what a great name. Anyway, now, the next day, uh, on the boat of the Tajamar arrived at the Rubicon with seven men on it. And when Gadifer's men asked what they were doing there, Burthon's men inside the Rubicon made great waste and destruction of the stores belonging to the Monsieur de Bethencourt, and the following evening Burthon arrived himself by land, followed by thirty men of the ship Tajamar, to whom he said, Take bread and wine and whatever there is, and may he be hanged who spares anything, and cursed be any who leaves anything which can be taken away. Burthon was not, strictly speaking, of provisions. There were some French women residing at Castle Rubicon. Berthon ordered them be taken by force, and against their will they were delivered up to the Spaniards, who dragged them from the castle down to the beach, and violated them in spite of their loud cries and shrieks of distress. The next morning, Berthon de Berneval had the boats laden with a variety of things, such as bags of flour in great quantity, armor of different kinds, and the only cask of wine which was there. With this they filled a smaller cask, which they had brought with them, and then drank and wasted the rest. They also took several trunks, boxes, and packages of all sorts, as well as a good many crossbows, and all the bows there were, excepting those that were with Gadifer on Lobos. They carried off two hundred bowstrings and great quantities of line for making crossbow strings, and it had not been for a small remainder of old line for making bows that remained. The men who remained had all been in danger of being utterly destroyed, for the Canarians feared bows more than anything else. Besides all these, the Spaniards carried away four dozen darts and two coffers belonging to Gadifer, along with their contents. Now, that Burthon's tragedy, or excuse me, treachery, does not kill Gadifer de La Salle, who, as we remember again, is stuck on the tiny island of Lobos, is a result of the decision of the other Spanish ship, the Marea, captained by Francisco Calvo, who had earlier rebuffed Burthon for suggesting betrayal against Bethancourt and Gadifer. Well, Francisco Calvo and the Marea stuck around. And after rebuffing Berthon de Berneval, uh, lucky for Gennifer, it is, um, the cast, after the castle Rubicon had been raped and pillaged, the remaining men loyal to Gadifer and Bethancourt sent two squires and, two, and the two chaplains out from the Rubicon to find the Morea and to beg assistance from Francisco Calvo, which, like the Tajamar, was lying in the port of Graciosa. Now, Ca Calvo apparently felt some pity at the situation of Gadifer and the eleven other men who had been on the island of Lobos without provisions for eight days now, because he sent out some men and provisions in the small boat he had. 
Though even this was made difficult because apparently Burthen had taken the orders of the boat earlier, leaving the rescue party to make their way to Lobos, uh, or the four leagues to Lobos, in a small boat without oars, in, quote, the most horrible passage that can be found in these seas, according to the account of all those who have tried it, unquote. Now, the rescue boat, though, did make it, and Gadifer and his men were quite relieved, as you might imagine, when said rescue party arrived. Now, I'm not sure how hungry they really were, considering they were on the island of Lobos to hunt seals, because the island of Lobos was full of seals, but Lobos had no fresh water. And to keep themselves from dying of thirst, they spread out a linen cloth to catch the dew of heaven each night, then each morning wrung it and drank the drops to survive. Now, Gadifer had no idea what Burthen had done, and was greatly astonished to hear it. And the boat, afterwards, began ferrying the men back to Rubicon, which was a very slow process, partly on account of the boat being unable to ferry all of the men over all at once, but mostly on account of the lack of oars. Now, meanwhile, back uh, in the port of Graciosa, the two chaplains that were still aboard the ship uh, Morea, decided, with an escort, to visit the other ship, the Tajamar, basically in order to shame Berthen. And when they arrived, Berthen is said to have exclaimed, quote, Do not suppose that any of these things are Bethencourts or Gadifers. They are mine. Unquote. The chaplains replied where everyone could hear. Berthen, what we do know perfectly well is that when you arrived with Monsieur de Bethencourt, you brought little or nothing with you. And in fact, Monsieur de Bethencourt, at the beginning of this enterprise, handed you over in Paris a hundred francs in furtherance of our common enterprise. But these things here are his property and Gadifer's. Berthen assured them he was going straight to Spain, where he would be happy to return any of Bethencourt's belongings, if indeed he did have any of his property. And he also warned the chaplains not to meddle in this matter any further. Before departing, however, the chaplains pleaded for two things. First, the boat, saying that without it, they would be unable to live. To this, Berthen stated that it was up to his men, since it was their boat. They, apparently, either feeling pity for those who were remaining at Lanzarote, or else, perhaps, frightened for their salvation, promptly gave the boat to the chaplains and their escort. The other topic the chaplains brought with them was that they needed Berthen to leave the interpreter he had captured. Quote, since you are taking away these poor people, leave us at least Isabel the Canarian, for without her we are unable to speak with the inhabitants of the island. Unquote. Berthen did indeed deliver the unfortunate Isabel to the chaplains by tossing her out of the porthole of the ship, and there she would have drowned had it not been for the chaplains and squires in the boat. Finally, before departing, before departing, Berthen convinced a dozen of his men to leave the ship, and when they did, he stranded them on the island of Lanzarote. Now, perhaps this was out of some mixture of avarice and fear that they might betray him, like he had betrayed Bethencourt and Gadifer. 
Though in addition to these motives, Berthen also probably had it on his mind, the ability to control the narrative once he got back to Europe, uh, and to make sure that Bethencourt knew the, uh, the truth of what had happened during his absence. Now these 12 men apparently rather feared what would become of them after they had betrayed the other uh, guys who were still at Lanzarote. Because the first thing they did after being stranded on the island was to beg for forgiveness. They told one of the two chaplains if that if Gadifer would forgive them, they would serve him for the rest of their lives. And the chaplain soon left to Rubicon to deliver the message. The traitors, though, got nervous. They didn't even wait for to hear for a reply. They were so frightened of, of possible retribution from Gadifer and the other men that they had uh, betrayed by sacking Rubicon, that they took off from the Canarians in, in the little boat and made their way to Africa. The boat capsized off the coast of Morocco. Ten of the twelve men there drowned. The other two survived and were made into slaves, apparently. Meanwhile, back in Spain, Monsieur de Bethencourt was having some issues of his own. Now, first, in case I, I haven't made this clear, excuse me, the reason he is in Spain was to recruit more help. Now, as a Frenchman, this is almost certainly not his first choice, but there just weren't all that many would-be conquistadors in France, uh, especially not in comparison to Spain. And this made uh, Bethencourt increasingly dependent upon aid from Spain, though he could have also gotten some help in Portugal had he chosen to do so. Sure. Now, while in the short term this helps Bethencourt, none of the gains he has made or will make in the future will be possible without the aid of Spanish conquistadors. And in the long run, this virtually assures that the Canaries will become a Spanish and not a French colony. Now, second, and more pressingly, for the, uh, uh, at the moment anyway, for the distinguished monsieur, as far as his problems go, was that while he's in Seville, meeting with the king of Castile, his ship is wrecked and lost off a sandbar. Now, shortly after this, the Tajamar arrives in port, along with Berth and some of his partisans, the ones who were not drowned or enslaved, ah, that is, and along with the unfortunate Canarians whom he had tricked or captured, uh, and captured, excuse me. Now, unfortunately for Berth and his men, another man on board the ship was Gadifer de La Salle's personal, personal trumpeter. And upon the arrival of the Tajamar, he promptly arrested Berth and his accomplices, had them put in chains and cast into the king's prison at Cadiz. The trumpeter also sent word to Bethencourt that he could save the Canarians if he hastened to the Tajamar, but while Bethencourt was waiting audience with the king of Castile, the Spanish captain of the Tajamar took the ship to Aragon and sold his prisoners there. Bethencourt, meanwhile, met with the Spanish king and paid him homage. I come, sire, to pray you to be pleased to grant me permission to conquer and bring to the Christian faith certain islands called the Islands of Canary, he is said to have spoken to the king, who said encouragingly back to Bethencourt that he was pleased with this proposition. He accepted his homage, and as far as it was possible, gave him lordship of the Canary Islands. 
He also gave him a fifth of the merchandise which had come from these islands to Spain, which Monsieur de Bethencourt received for a long time after. The, fur the king further made him an immediate grant of 20,000 Maravedis to be received in Seville for the purchase of provisions for Gadifer and those left with him. The king also gave him leave to coin money in the Canaries, which he did and when, when he came into peaceful possession of the islands. Thus, Bethencourt bargained himself into sole leadership of the Canary Islands, which would be ruled as a vassal colony of Castile. His partner Gadifer, still at Lanzarote, was left out of the agreement. Now, this was a tremendous personal victory for Bethencourt, even if his rule of the Canaries was going to be under the auspices of the Castilian crown. Well, that also meant it was now under the protection of the Castilian crown. And meanwhile, Gadifer and the men on the Canaries weren't quite out of the woods yet. The Spanish nobleman that the king had put in charge of putting together the money for Bethencourt seems to have been quite corrupt. And he absconded with at least a part of the money promised to Bethencourt. And so Bethencourt was forced to appeal to the king of Castile for aid again and finally was given charge of a well-mounted vessel after that, with 80 active men, 4 tons of wine, 17 sacks of corn, and other useful things in the shape of arms and other provisions. Bethencourt sent the vessel ahead to the Canaries, bidding Gadifer to manage matters as well as he could until he could return as well, and Gadifer was well pleased when the vessel arrived bearing the men and provisions, but when he read the letter Bethencourt sent him, then discovered that he would not be sharing in the possession and profits of the island, which Bethencourt had secured solely for himself, a rift began to develop between the two leaders of the conquest. And Gadifer wasn't the only person on the Canary Islands upset with the current situation as a result of all these proceedings either. The Guanche people of Lanzarote were much aggrieved at thus being betrayed and captured, and imagined that European faith and law could not be as good as it was represented, since they betrayed one another and were not consistent with their actions. In response to the capture of the 22 Canarians, the indigenous people of Lanzarote retaliated with rage and terror, and killed some of the European men living on the island. Gadifer threatened to kill every Guanche he could lay his hands on if those who had committed the murders were surrendered to him. In this contentious atmosphere of, at of violence and threatened violence, a certain Guanche nobleman who had aspirations of being king began consulting with Gadifer. The ambitious Guanche nobleman's name was Aish, and he claimed that the current king of Lanzarote hated the Christians and was responsible for the deaths of Gadifer's companions. So after gaining Gadifer's trust, uh, and when Aish judged the opportunity was come, he informed Gadifer that the Guanche king was in a castle with 50 of his people. Learning this, Gadifer left with 19 of his men for the village, that held the castle and the king on the eve of St. Christopher in 1402. They marched all night and arrived just before daybreak. At first, 
Gadfer and his men believed they were obtaining an easy entry. But one of the guards spotted them and made a desperate defense that wounded several of the conquistadors. Five more Guanche men came out to fight, and three of those received grievous wounds, one with a sword and two others with arrows. And at last the Christians succeeded in forcing the house. Upon doing so, Gadifer discovered that the men responsible for the original murders were not there. And so he only retained the king and another man named Albi and chained them around the neck before taking them directly to the spot where his men had been killed. Gadifer became so furious when he reached that spot where his men's bodies were covered in dirt that he grabbed Albi and would have struck off his head, except the king of Lanzarot assured him that Albi was not guilty of the crime. He offered his own head, if he should be found guilty, of conniving at the slaughter. Thus they returned together to Rubicon, and the king was set in irons. Now, a few days later, Aish came to the castle, and it was arranged that he should be made king on condition that he and his partisans receive baptism. Now, when the imprisoned king saw Aish at Rubicon, he looked at him with indignation and called him a wicked traitor. Aish, seeing his enemy in chains, realized there really wasn't any need for him to submit to the authority of Gadifer and the Christian religion, so our chroniclers record that he took leave of Gadifer and infested himself with the royal robes, which is to say he made like Napoleon and crowned himself king without the authority of the church. Now, what the chroniclers record happens next is probably some combination of truth and fabrication, so I'm going to tell you what they record, and then I'm going to let you know what I think really happened. And so you can decide for yourself whether or not things went down uh, uh, as the record states. Because a few days after all of this, Gadifer apparently sent seven men to collect barley, for their store of bread was almost out. This they did, and they placed it in an old castle, which was, they mean the castle having earlier built by Lanzarado Melicello. Now afterwards, they sent out to fetch some more men to help carry the barley, and on their way back, they met the new King Aish, who was on the road along, excuse me, with 23 of his men. Now, Aish greeted them with the appearance of friendship and joined company with them. But the Europeans grew suspicious and huddled themselves together except for one named Guillaume de Andrac, who rode with the natives, suspecting nothing. Once separated, the latter saw their opportunity and they fell upon said Guillaume, dragged him down off of his horse, giving him thirteen wounds, and would have killed him, but his comrades, hearing the noise, turned and rescued him with great difficulty, carrying him back to the castle of Rubicon. The authors of the Canarian continue after this. Now it, quote, Now it just so happened that on the same night of that day, the rightful king of Lanzarote, and I haven't mentioned his name because the uh, our authors have not, uh, I, 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 I think they have purposefully not given this guy a name to try and, uh, and erase him uh, from history somehow. I, I, I'm not sure. Uh, anyway, they say he escaped his imprisonment. And as soon as he reached his own dwelling, he seized Aish and had him stoned and burned to death afterwards. Now, I don't know about you, 
But the idea that the imprisoned king just so happened to escape prison after the new king, who was only in power because he had gotten aid from the Europeans had and then had betrayed his new allies once taking power, now, I'm just suspicious of that happening all at the same time, just to say the least. It seems a little far-fetched. Now, it doesn't mean it couldn't have happened that way. But if you ask me, and well, you're listening, aren't you? The conquistadors at Lanzarote felt betrayed by the fact that the new Guanche king was nothing like he they expected he would be when they put him in power. Gadifer was certainly keen to take advantage of divide-and-conquer tactics, um, but I don't believe he would have aided Aish to become king had he known that the ambitious nobleman would have then immediately rejected Christianity. Um, instead, I think he probably uh, sought to turn... He, I think he probably was trying to turn one of the tribes of Guanche on the island into allies, which could be used in conflicts against other tribes uh, or other non-Guanche uh, excuse me, non-Christian guanches. Now, further, Gadifer almost definitely would not have aided Aish if he knew that once in power, Aish would ambush his men. Now, the authors of the Canary go so far as to suspect that Aish had even purposefully chosen to tell Gadifer that the king was residing in a castle he knew would be well defended and would thus inflict heavy casualties on the Christians while simultaneously removing uh, his own chief rival. Now, now, with all of this in mind, I don't think it is surprising that the end of Aish's tale ends uh, within the Canarian, that it ends as a morality play would, uh, with Aish, the betrayer, ultimately being tortured to death. In fact, the, the saga of Aish, if I, if I can call it that, I guess, might well have um, in reality, it might have strengthened uh, Canarian resistance against the conquistadors on Lanzarote, since by the end of the episode, the original king was free and restored to power, and a uh, dangerous traitor and his chief rival had been eliminated. Now, Gadifer and the men uh, at, at uh, the Rubicon knew that their opportunity to divide and conquer the Guash at that time was lost. And so, they made war upon the people of Lanzarote without allies. Bethencourt's chroniclers report what happened next. In response to Aish's attack against one of his men, the conquistadors took one of the Canarian prisoners to a high mountain, cut off his head, and stuck it on a high pole, so that everyone might see it and opened war against the natives. They captured great numbers of men, women, and children, and the remnant betook themselves for refuge in the caverns in the mountains of the island. They did not dare to wait for the approach of the Christians, the great number of whom scoured the country, while the rest remained at home at the castle to guard the prisoners. They used all of their efforts to make captives, for it was their only solace till the arrival of Monsieur de Bethencourt. Now, in the meantime, until Bethencourt's arrival, Gadifer remained in charge, and as such, he developed a plan um, with his companions to win the war. They resolved that if no other course opened to them, that they would kill all the men of the country who bore arms, that they would save the women and children and have them baptized. As a result of this, uh, the enacting of this plan, 80 persons were baptized that year. 
And in fact, the authors of the Canarian seemed so pleased with Gadifer's plan and how well it was working that they saw no reason to doubt that if Monsieur de Bethencourt had been able to return sooner to the Canaries, and if a few princes had given them his assistance, he might have conquered not only the Canaries, but a great many other countries, then very little known, but as profitable as any as the wor in the world, and full of misbelievers of diverse laws and language. Well, then... That is certainly a fanciful opinion of the situation. As it was, the conquistadors of Lanzarote had settled for a partial conquest of one single island within the Canarian chain. The many other great countries referred to uh, in the text were, were Africa, essentially. And the key reason for the importance in both Castilian and Portuguese eyes, as far as ownership of the Canaries, is the proximity of the island chain and, uh, to Africa, and, and thus uh, giving them the ability uh, to launch ships from the Canaries or to refill uh, their supplies there. Now, eventually, the conquistadors at the Castle Rubicon saw a ship appear on the horizon, and on board this ship was Bethencourt, along with the victuals and other necessities he procured from the Spanish crown, and more than 80 men who had signed on to the conquest, although half of them apparently laid up with sickness, were laid up with sickness. They were Castilians, whose command was given to Bethencourt by the King of Castile, along with a store of arms and provisions. Now, Gadifer alone knew through letters that Bethencourt had sent him, that Bethencourt had paid homage to the Castilian king, and that he alone was now lord of the Canary Islands, leaving Gadifer's companions astonished that he seemed so vexed and less cheerful at the arrival of Bethencourt than everyone else was. Gadifer did not speak as to why he was unhappy, and apparently put on as good a face as he could manage, given his feelings of the situation. And his displeasure aside... The men of Rubicon were quite cheerful indeed. Besides being resupplied, they got to learn the fate of Berthin's men, how some had drowned, some were enslaved, and the rest were in prison. Huzzah! Their cheer increased even more so a short time later, when the boat which Berthin's men had used to travel to Morocco uh, was spotted offshore, having been returned by ocean currents over 500 leagues to whence it came. Now, it is hard not to sympathize a little bit with Gadifer here. I think most of us have probably all experienced similar feelings when our hard work has not always been, um, I, I guess, properly rewarded. I've been passed up for promotions I felt I was deserving of, and, and that was a hard pill to, to swallow. I nearly became the manager of Wormslow State Historic Site, a job I would have cherished, and um, and the person who got the job over me has done a fine job. Uh, but I can tell you that it was difficult remaining in my position under under a new boss uh, with quite the same zeal as I had before. And and after I lost out on the promotion, uh, Savannah was uh, hit by a hurricane. I think Hurricane William. 
Uh, and this was the first hurricane that hit Savannah in about two decades, first big storm like that. As a result, some of the most challenging work I ever did at, at Wormslow was in the aftermath of that storm and in the aftermath of being passed up for promotion. Now, the reason I bring all this up is to say that I, I know firsthand that you can, you can turn that sort of resentment, like any, any bad feelings, into fuel, motivation. And the reason I say that um, is because I believe Gadifer does exactly that, what I did with his feelings. Quote, After Bethencourt's vessel arrived at Rubicon and unloaded her cargo of provisions, Monsieur Gadifer went on board her with a great part of his company and put to sea to visit the other Canary Islands on behalf of Monsieur de Bethencourt with an eye for their future conquest. In addition, the master and crew of the bark were very anxious to secure some of the produce of these parts, which would bring them great profits in Castile, such as skins, fats, oracle, dates, dragon's bloods, and many other things. Of course, the many other things referred to here basically being slaves, first and foremost. So, now, I don't want to overemphasize Bethencourt's motivation here as just being one of wanting to get away, get on a boat and get away from Bethencourt. But, um, you know... You know, after Hurricane William hit Savannah, my main motivation was to clean the park. But the anger I felt helped me clean the park faster. And, and I, think, I think I can see a similar zeal in Gadifer here. Now, before I get off on any more of a tangent, let us continue shortly afterwards having left off, when Gadifer and his company arrive at the island of Fuerteventura, along with two canary guides. Now, a few days after the landing, he started for the river Vende Palms to see if they could come upon any of the natives, and nearly reached it by nightfall. Um, and upon reaching a fountain there, they rested a while before they started to climb a high mountain, whence they could overlook a great part of the country. But when the party was halfway up the mountain, the Spaniards said they would go no further. Twenty-one of the thirty-five men turned back. Most of these were crossbowmen. Gadifer was much displeased, but he kept on the road with his twelve remaining men, only two of whom were archers. Finally reaching the summit, Gadifer took six companions and went to the place where the river falls into the sea to look for and to ascertain whether there were any good harbors there before returning upstream to meet with other companions of the entrance of the palm grove, which was wonderfully difficult to access. It required the men, in fact, to remove their shoes and to balance themselves on smooth and slippery slabs of marble while holding their lances to steady themselves. And, and let me just tell you from personal experience, I agree. The buckled clog shoes that are first made popular in Italy during the 14th century and in various styles are still popular amongst Europeans all the way into the 19th century, uh, where you get the invention of shoelaces. These are the worst shoes in the world. There is no traction at all. Uh, moccasins are a fair superior shoe, uh, except in one category. Uh, a man wearing buckled leather clogs with hard soles can more easily uh, show off his wealth by purchasing silver or gold buckles. It's an absolutely terrible creation, but I digress. Now, uh, once having crossed the passage, uh, the men there found themselves in a lovely valley with streams running through it. And 
shaded by perhaps 800 palms, more than 20 fathoms high, like the masts of a ship, which were so green and leafy and full of fruit that they were a goodly sight of beho to behold, they dined in the shade there, near the running brooks, for they were all very weary. And once resuming their journey, Gadifer and his companions climbed a great hill, after which he sent forth three of their number. And when these three scouts had gone some distance, they came upon their enemies, whom they attacked and put to flight. Pierre the Canarian, one of the two translators, captured a woman during this and caught two others in a cavern. Gadifer and the others, meanwhile, knew nothing of, of this yet because, as he only had eleven uh, other men besides Pierre, had them spread out wide, thinking that in such a fruitful country there must be inhabitants, though he had not yet encountered any. Now, the name of our last episode uh, was Chivalry, and uh, the authors of The Canarian make this all seem very exciting. It's a grand adventure that Gadifer and the others get to go on, and it's written in a way that, that makes it designed. Uh, it's designed in part, I think, to attract young men who would read the account and want to take part in those same sorts of adventures themselves. Uh, these are clearly aspects, uh, or these are clearly some of the aspects of the gung-ho attitude uh, of the conquistadors that I appeal to us today. But Gadifer and his men are hunting people, and it's important to remember that too. And for the two people trapped by Pierre the Canarian, who were a woman with her infant child, um, this was such a terrifying experience that the woman, the mother, strangled her own infant babies uh, to stop that baby from crying and alerting the slavers who were looking for them where she was hiding. Now, now, the conquistador may have some admirable qualities, or maybe I'm just a fucked up person, I don't know. But it is very clear to me that his chief export to the world is human misery. Now, this would not be the last life or death decision that an indigenous Canarians would make that day. Another group of Castilians happened upon a group of about 50 natives, the men ran at the would-be slavers, engaging with them so that the women and children of the group could safely retreat out of reach. The other conquistadors were scattered in different directions, meanwhile, and hastened towards the melee. The first two to arrive rushed into combat and would have been killed, according to our sources, if a third had not arrived with a bow, thus completing the discomfiture of the natives. Gadifer and three other men were also near and followed the Canarians to the mountains where they had fled. But before they could meet, the night overtook them. It became so dark that only with great difficulty did Gadifer recollect his men. The chase lasted from early evening to about midnight. And then afterwards, Gadifer and his men walked the rest of the night back to the boat, lamenting that the entire night only netted them as captives four women. Now, Gadifer thought that the Castilians held back during this chase, and he would not trust them for the remainder of the journey, which would take uh, three months. Uh, now, and upon their eventual return, they will be dismissed and replaced by a fresh crew recruited by Bethancourt and Castile. Um, now, the authors make special note that Bor 
quote, but for the sudden nightfall which surprised Gadifer and his companions, not one of the Canarians would have escaped them, unquote. And that is certainly an interesting hypothesis. Now, I would argue that the Canarians' familiarity with the terrain and superior athleticism probably had a lot more to do with it, but maybe I'm wrong. Time worked differently that day. And nightfall could have come much more suddenly than normal. Now, Gadifer and his men quitted Fuenteventura and next made their way for the Grand Canary. They entered at a harbor between Feldez and Argones, where about 500 Canarians came out to speak with them. Now, this large showing by the population of Grand Canary prompts Gadifer to have a very different type of cultural exchange than what had occurred uh, when he and his conquistadors met with a smaller number of natives on Fuerteventura. Uh, 22 of the natives uh, came aboard his vessel, exchanging figs and dragon's blood for things like fishing hooks and knives and other uh, pieces of iron. The dragon's blood, according to our sources, was worth well over 200 ducats, while what was in exchange was given was hardly worth two francs. And that's a very good exchange rate. Uh, but considering the entirety of Canarian civilization was without iron tools at this time, and the islands, meanwhile, were full of dragon's blood, I think the Canarians actually walked away feeling the exact same way as the Europeans had. What fools giving up their valuable iron for a common plant. You know, that sort of thing. At any rate, uh, this trade continued for another two days. Um, now, in, during this time, Gadifer sent Pierre, the interpreter, five leagues away to speak with the king of this tribe. But when he did not return at the appointed time, uh, Gadifer asked uh, the Spaniards if they would delay. Uh, Pierre had been a very valuable human resource, after all, but the Spanish masters of the vessel would not wait in the harbor further, and so they went four leagues away and waited there instead, and sent a small boat full of men to look for the interpreter. The small boat, though, was prevented by landing, uh, from landing by the Canarians, who our authors remind us, quote, never fail to attack any small force which enter their country, for there is a great number of nobles amongst them, according to their condition and manner of life, unquote. Now, I don't know if Pierre the Canarian used this opportunity to run away, since apparently Gadifer had placed some amount of trust in him, but I wouldn't be surprised. Um, with that said, I also wouldn't be surprised if the Canarian king simply used the opportunity to kidnap Pierre, since he would have been an almost equally valuable source of information, uh, on the island for the natives, since uh, Pierre had a, a knowledge of, of Spanish. Now, I think it's also worth considering that both of these things could be true at the same time. I don't know about you, but I can't help but uh, kind of have a, um, think, similar thoughts almost about the situation between Edward Snowden and Vladimir Putin as a modern-day comparison to this sort of thing. I mean... One of my favorite professors, my favorite professor, uh, Peter Hoffer, once told me, in fact, you know, history does not repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. Now, the authors of The Canarian go on afterwards to relate a story uh, after this of 13 missionaries who had come to the Grand Canary 12 years before this and had been killed by the natives after living there for seven years. Now, I don't 
know exactly why they tell the story here, except maybe to remind the reader of the supposed barbarism of this alien culture in comparison to the Christians. But that doesn't mean it's not true. And we should remember that just as we remember that the conquistadors were some of the worst people who ever walked the planet Earth, um, that these guys, you know, Gadifer and these men, they're only as successful as they are in part because they are able to collaborate with natives of the cultures they are encountering with. Um, Pierre the Canarian may have run away. He may not have run away. But either way, he seems to have actively participated in the capture of, of most of the women that Gadifer's crew had already stolen off Fuerteventura before this. Now, this does not at all absolve Gadifer. That's not why I'm saying this or these other, these terrible guys uh, from, from the, but frankly, the crimes against humanity that these people commit. But it does remind me that no single culture can ever monopolize evil. And just as we should not lionize Gadifer and the other conquistadors, and instead we should take their actions into account in our judgments of them, we also need to have a realistic view of the native Canarians and, and other people who we would be meeting. Because some of these guys are willing to kill and enslave uh, with an equal ferocity that, that the Europeans sometimes uh, possess. Now, further, there are people, uh, the Canarians and others, who see the Canarians as possible allies against enemies from within their own tribes or against neighboring tribes. Uh, Aish is the perfect example of this. And, and I'm saying all of this I, just to remind you that people are very complicated. Um, and with all that said, and I, I might be setting myself up as a, a bit of a villain to some of you in saying this, but um, if I uh, may... Uh, I think it might be best to make this point by uh, using a famous line from uh, Animal Farm, a great book. All animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. And let me tell you, friend, all men can be evil. Some are more evil than others. The European conquistadors may not have monopolized evil, but their seemingly unlimited avarice sets them apart. Both, and frankly, both from other cultures of their day, and, and, and frankly, from most people who have lived on this planet, either before or since them. They are really, I mean, really, they are the worst people in the world. Now, at any rate, um, if we may return to our tale. After losing Pierre the Canarian, Gadifer stood before his 35 companions and lamented that if only he had 100 more bowmen and also 100 more men besides that, the island would be his, her inhabitants subjugated and converted to Christianity. Well, Leaving those dreams of conquest aside, 
They then departed and set sail, passing by the island of Pharaoh, and from thence onwards to Gomera, where they arrived at night, and found some natives there making fires on the shore. Gadifer sent some men in the boats in the direction of the fires. They found a man and three women, whom they captured and brought back to the vessel. They remained there until daybreak, when some men departed again to collect water. They were attacked and repelled by the natives, forced to return to the ship without resupplying, and so, after this, Gadifer and the men left Gomera, this time heading for Palma. A great storm and contrary wind drove them backwards and sailed towards Pharaoh, an island they had earlier passed. Uh, this time they did land, remaining there for 22 days. Uh, and, in the, and in this time they captured four more women and a child. They also found a great number of animals, including pigs, goats, and sheep. And the authors also hint at the likely reason why Gadifer had skipped the island in the first place. Quote, there are now very few inhabitants in this place, for every year some of them are carried off captive. In 1402, it was said that no less than 400 of them were taken, unquote. Gadifer sailed to Palma after this lengthy stay at, uh, at Pharaoh, though. And uh, all the other islands after that, according to our source, in order to discover the best means of conquering them before finally returning to Castle Rubicon at Lanzarote. Now, the authors say in some of Gadifer's observations, uh, which he reported upon returning from his journey, that, quote, having visited and remained in them for some time, Gadifer was able to observe their peculiarities and the profit to which they might be put. He saw no reason to doubt that if they fell into skillful hands, they would prove very profitable. Now, having returned to Rubicon after an absence of about three months, they found their companions like themselves, well and hearty. And after more than a hundred prisoners at the castle of Rubicon, um, now while Gadifer and his crew were absent, the men who remained at the castle had killed many natives and reduced the others to such extremity that they knew no longer what to do, and now came from day to day and threw themselves at the mercy of the conquistadors, so that hardly any remained alive were unbaptized, especially of those who might have given trouble and been too much for them. Upon the same day as Gadifer's return, they unloaded their captives to a Spanish ship, which will I import and thus promptly departed for Spain, its hull full of human cargo. And Bethencourt arrived shortly afterwards at, at Rubicon with a small but gallant company, which uh, would replace the men whom had traveled with Gadifer. Now, for Bethencourt, this again was another moment of personal triumph since Gadifer and his men, according to our sources, received him with a welcome quote as would be difficult to describe. Next, the Canarians who had been baptized, um, at, as they prostrated themselves before him to do him reverence according to the custom of their country. Three days later, the king of Lanzarote, who had escaped so many times before, was caught again with eighteen companions, though not without difficulty. He was led by before Bethencourt, and on Tuesday, the 20th of February, 1404, the pagan king of Lanzarote 
prostrated himself before him, owing himself conquered, and threw himself at the mercy of Bethancourt. Now after this, all the island came one by one to be baptized, both great and small. Bethancourt and Gadifer even put aside their differences temporarily, and after speaking with each other, embraced each other, weeping for joy. The conquest of Lanzarote was complete. Now, the authors of the Canarian, as you might expect from Two Men of the Cloth, they go on to provide a fairly detailed account of the religious instruction they were that they provided for the, the baptized natives. Um, now, the first religious principle taught was the concept of original sin. So God has already managed. Now, the second principle taught to the Canarians was the story of the biblical flood. So... Basically, the uh, clergy told their newly conquered flock that they already had two strikes against them. Now, after that, they began instructing the prospective Canarian convert in the history of the Jewish people. Now, mind you, all of this could have very well taken years, considering the difficulties of translation and of learning a foreign language. And by this point, our prospective convert really hasn't even learned anything much about the message of Jesus yet. The main purpose of missionary instruction in the Canary Islands is clear. It was to help make conquest more successful, a cultural tool honed by centuries of warfare within the Iberian Peninsula and elsewhere in the Mediterranean world against Islam. Now, with all that said, I think the biggest factor that is aiding uh, Bethancourt's uh, conquest is disease. Now, with that said, the impact of disease on the conquest is one that the authors of the Canarian are completely silent about. Now, we are not going to be silent on this podcast on the impact of disease on the history of the Atlantic world, but I do think it would probably be best to save a larger discussion about the impact of disease on the world until a later date. Now, suffice it to say for now, that it is very likely that the Canarians during the late medieval period were being introduced to a host of deadly pathogens that lived in concert with the European slavers and their animals, um, and that this disease was that this this was by far the greatest uh, weapon, I guess you could say, at the disposal of of Europeans against Atlantic and later American indigenous peoples. Um, Abreu de Galindo, uh, who was writing a little later, says that when the Europeans first came to the island of Gran Canary, two-thirds of the island were wiped away by a plague. Now, if this proportion, if this holds true, it probably holds roughly true for all of the islands of the Canaries, if Galindo is correct. Now, and while the authors of the Canary leave us in the dark as to the impact of the changing microbiological landscape on the islands... Um, which is the only reason his, that Bethencourt's ill-funded conquest is successful, they are far more illuminating when it comes to what Bethencourt hoped to accomplish with the conquest. And the authors implore us not to wonder whether it was worth it. Quote, that Bethencourt should have undertaken a conquest as these islands, there is little doubt. 
See, if Christian men, in fact, would give a little support in the undertaking, all the islands, great and small, would be conquered. And the French clergy specifically ask for aid from any noble prince of the kingdom of France, but in practice, those who were offering help and arriving on the islands were coming more and more from Aragon, Portugal, and mostly Castile. These are the three nations from which such a prince, uh, from which such a prince might attempt this most reasonable and feasible undertaking at little cost, say, say our authors, since these three predatory states would supply the conquistadors with victuals of all sorts, with ships better than any other country, and with pilots who knew the harbors of these lands. The Canaries were also a great launching pad for crusading, says the Canarians, since there could be no point more favorable for a conquest of the Saracens, nor from which could they be attacked with less trouble or cost than from here. The journey was easy and short, comparatively uncostly. In fact, the more we listen to the authors of the Canarian, the more us as modern listener, readers, or listeners in your case, are struck with visions of utopia. Considering the Canaries purportedly were a place which had the most healthy climate, contained no venomous animals, and for during all the long time no one suffered from any sickness. Further, the islands could be reached from La Rochelle in less than a fortnight and in good weather from Seville in less than a week. The country is large, wide, flat, and broad, supplied with all good things, with fine rivers and towns. The infidels have no armor nor any knowledge of warfare. They are therefore not to be dreaded like the other nations, for they have no missile weapons, proven to be the best and most important of African weapons. And also... Here one might easily learn news of Prester John. So, in sum, at this point, the Canary Islands are, according to the authors of the Canarian, the best land in the world, a land where no one will ever get sick, a land full of towns, which are full of undefended savages. You're free to enslave or rape them or whatever you want to do. And also that this is, in fact, the perfect place to stage a joint invasion of the Muslim world with Prester John. Now, all of this might sound just a little silly bit to us, but remember, we're a little more savvy when it comes to propaganda than the average person in the 14th century. I mean, today we are bombarded with propaganda from so many various sources and, and, and sometimes in, in very insidious ways um, that such a matter-of-fact statement of a utopian land seems a little too good to be true. But there were... But you're all, you know, the average person in the 14th century was not bombarded by propaganda. And, and likewise, there's just enough kernels of truth in these claims that for thousands of would-be conquistadors heading to the Canary Islands in search of plunder of the course of the 15th century, um, you know, there was enough truth in that to keep them coming. Much of the land in the Canaries was well suitable for sugar plant production. And the natives there didn't wear armor. 
And because of the Atlantic currents, the Canary Islands were a pretty good enterpot and base for ships that might head to Africa. But Europeans who experienced the Canaries firsthand would discover time and time again that the natives on the islands were far from inexperienced in war. And whatever deficiencies they had from a lack of iron were made up for by physical advantages that these well-fed, well-exercised, pastoral people possessed. So with all that in mind, I think it's worth me saying again, if it's not for disease, there would never have been a conquest of the Canary Islands. Now as it is, we do, of course, live in a world with disease, and as such, the Monsieur de Bethencourt found himself in command of the conquered island of Lanzarote, and from there, he looked east towards Africa in search of the Rio de Oro, or the River of Gold in English. He imagined that the river was somewhere near Cape Bojador, and so there Bethencourt sailed in order to look for a good place uh, to harbor, or a good place to which he could make tenable and fortify, so as to obtain a foothold in that country, and to be able to put it to tribute, if he were able to succeed. Now, our authors make sure to remind us that Bethencourt had not forgotten about the conquest of the Canaries, and he would complete that conquest to perfection if he could only secure some aid from France. Hint, hint, ahem. Bethencourt apparently learned a great deal about the lands of the Saracens, but he did not find the Rio de Oro. Of course, one insurmountable problem he had in discovering a source for gold, besides the fact that the Rio de Oro is imaginary, was that he was probably under the impression, as many Europeans of the day were, that gigantic ants, the size of dogs, lived near the Rio de Oro, and they were the ones who drew up from the ground the large nuggets of gold from which the nearby merchants made off so nicely. And that Boy, it was something that little kid Jesse could really relate to, because I had a huge problem when I was young in that my parents were always asking after I asked them for something, and then they told me, no, what, do you think we have a money tree? And I didn't really have a good answer to that, and I guess I should have been asking them if uh, they knew where we might get some gold-mining dog-sized ants. Now, before we give Bethencourt too tough a time for searching for the river of gold and anthills of gold, and I think it's fair to say that he might have just been kind of looking for something to do that wasn't too costly and might increase his fortune, because the men at Rubicon had quickly run out of supplies after he had uh, brought the last batch over uh, around the time of the capture of the king of Lanzarote. And after this, uh, they were experiencing much suffering, having been accustomed to good and plentiful fare. Not as much suffering as the Canarians of Lanzarote, mind you, but the conquistadors were, for the space of a year, without bread or wine, and lived upon flesh and fish as best they could. For a long time, they slept upon the bare ground, without either woolen or linen covering beyond the tattered dress they wore in the daytime. This was a grievous trial to them, independently of the great exertions which they had to make against their enemies. Now, the Canarians, despite being brought into subjection 
baptized and brought into the faith, rebelled against the French during this time and waged mortal war with them, especially the inhabitants of Lanzarote. Now, I think that's pretty pretty interesting. And, and, and that's something that happens time and time again, isn't it? A lot of times we have people declare victory and then an insurgency is happening anyway. Um, now, the continued hostilities after the capture and execution of the king, which happened in the year 1404, combined with a lack of supplies, did nothing to improve the deteriorating relationship between Bethancourt and Gadifer. Now, the two had words, and Gadifer complained that though he had served admirably and tirelessly on the islands, Bethancourt alone had been made Lord of the Canaries, and thus alone was he granted the one-fifth of the profits of the islands. The two tabled this discussion long enough to make an attack on the island of Fuerteventura, but it was clear that Gadifer was not satisfied. And when they did reach Fuerteventura, a great raid was made upon the enemy, and several of which were captured and sent back to Lanzarote. They remained on that island for three months, exploring and fortifying their position, and built a fortress there on the broad brow of a mountain near a fresh spring at a league's distance from the sea, and called it Richeraque. I'm sure that's wrong. In the meantime, during the three months Bethancourt and Gadifer were at Fuerteventura, they again had words. The authors of the Canarian even go so far as to say that the two hated each other for a time. Now, nevertheless, the two knights put their differences aside again, long enough to join forces for an attempt at conquering the Grand Canary. They left Fuerteventura on the 25th of June, 1404, in Bethancourt's barge, and nearly died when a dreadful storm caused them to be driven over a hundred miles out to sea. But then they were able to return to the island, and after attempting to harbor, uh, and after failing to harbor uh, with because of strong winds, eventually they did so at the island. Uh, excuse me, at the town of Telde. And at this place, Pierre the Canarian came to speak with them. And afterward, the son of Artemy, king of the country, and other Canarians came in great numbers to the vessel, as they had done so on former occasions. The Canarians noticed, however, that this time the Europeans appeared in far fewer numbers than in previous encounters. And as such, they determined to use this to their advantage. Pierre the the Canarian offered Bethancourt water and several fresh hogs as a present. But meanwhile, an ambush was set up on shore. And when the boat came aboard the shore, the Canarian seized the end of the rope, which was thrown out to them from the end of the boat. And at this moment, the ambush sallied forth, pelting the conquistadors with large stones so that they were all wounded. The Canarians prepared to rush into the water to take the vessel. But Hannibal, Gadifer's bastard son, grabbed an oar, wounded as he was, and drove the Canarians back at the same time pushing the boat well out to sea, for several of the company were lying at the bottom and dared not raise their heads. And then the party returned to the vessel, very much beaten and hurt. It now being evident that the truce was over, the conquistadors returned to the skirmish, but the Canarians came against them, now with shields emblazoned with the arms of Castile, which they had taken from the Spaniards the previous season. The conquistadors suffered considerable loss, but inflicted little on the enemy. Defeated soundly, 
The Europeans then returned to the ship. Two days later, they sailed back to Fuerteventura. Once there, they found another barge with an ambuscade of Spaniards carrying provisions for Bethancourt and looking for revenge against a group of 42 Canarians who had ambushed and severely routed ten of their companions earlier in the week. Gadifer, having just experienced his own son, being killed and witnessing more and more Spaniards coming to the Canaries, finally came to the belief that the longer he remained in this country, the less he would gain. He confronted Bethencourt a final time. The two erupted into anger. Many hard words passed between the two until finally it fell out that within eight days, Monsieur de Bethencourt, having gotten his people and supplies, he and Gadifer left for Spain, neither one very pleased with the other, such that Bethencourt went in one vessel, Gadifer in another, and there they settled their matters. When the king of Castile was informed of the whole dispute, Gadifer's assertions were not to be believed. Seeing there was no other course open to him, Gadifer finally returned to France. He never made an appearance in the Canary Islands again. Bethencourt, meanwhile, his lordship upheld, was now very eager to return to the Canaries. He hadn't even really wanted to leave in the first place. He had merely gone because he was fearful of what Gadifer might have convinced the the king of Castile had he not gone. But with Gadifer done away with, and Gadifer still having allies in the Canaries, including his son Hannibal. Bethencourt needed to return, but before he could, he had to take care of some business. Previously, the king had granted him, amongst his liberties, the, ba- the power to mint coins on the Canary Islands. And now, uh, with Lanzarote securely in his command, he decided to make use of that. He made a deal with some merchants in Seville to take advantage of the royal grant, and as a result, several citizens of Seville took a great liking to him, made him a very handsome and gratifying presence in the way of armor, provisions, money, and gold to meet his more pressing necessities. He was very well known in that city, and greatly beloved. After this, the chroniclers of the Canarians say, Bethencourt returned to the islands in high spirits, like a man who had managed his matters well. What a truly terrible metaphor. Completely uninspiring. I hate to, to kind of go off on a tangent here, but let's, I haven't said their names in a while, so let me repeat them now. Pierre Brontier and Jean Leverrier, authors of our text Le Canarian. Uh, these two men should be ashamed of themselves. That is a pitiful attempt at writing. I am going to say it again. Bethencourt, quote, returned to the islands in high spirits, like a man who had managed his matters well, unquote. Wow. That's just terrible. And I, just because these guys lived in the in the 15th century and but what are they teaching in English class in these monasteries back then? Really? Jeez. Metaphor. It's called a metaphor. Eh, anyway, let me be stop being distracted by that really really revolting metaphor and and get back to it. I, both of my parents having master's degrees in English. That, that's where that comes from. Bethencourt returned uh, to the islands and went to Fuerteventura where he spoke with Gadifer's son Hannibal, who had come to greet him. And the two spoke courteously, says the Canarian, 
Afterwards, Bethencourt proceeded to the castle Richeracque, where he learned that the war on Fuerteventura was going poorly. Earlier, in fact, that same day, fifteen men had sallied forth from the castle to attack the Canarians, but had been opposed so vigorously that six were killed outright, leaving the rest to retreat back to the fortress, much beaten and much disheartened. Bethencourt made the decision to gather his men and leave Richeracque, and made his way to the other fortress on the island named Balthorhaze, which is where Hannibal and the other men on the island were stationed. And the re- I, I didn't mention this, but Balthorhaze and Richeracque are uh, two different two fortresses on the island because things between uh, Bethencourt and Hannibal, uh, excuse me, and Gadifer were going so poorly that while they had spent three months on on Fuerteventura earlier, um, the two were actually building separate fortresses on the island, um, at any rate. Uh, Bethencourt uh, arrived at Balthorhaze with his men on October 7th, 1404. And it did not take long after Bethencourt's retreat for the Canarians to take advantage of this. They broke into the now empty fortress of Richeracque, destroying it before proceeding the short journey journey uh, to the nearby port of Gardens, where Bethencourt has stored his provisions. They burned the chapel there and seized the supplies, consisting of a great quantity of iron and cannons. They burst open barrels and chests and took and destroyed everything that was there. Bethencourt then waited at Balthorhaze and mustered all the people he could find on that island, which took a bit of time, no small number of the men were away at the island of Lanzarote, and only then did Bethencourt take the field against the Canarians of Fuerteventura. He defeated them in several engagements, especially on two days of battle. A considerable number of Canarians were slain, and those whom they succeeded in taking alive were passed to the island of Lanzarote with their king. Those surviving Canarians who made the journey to Lanzarote found themselves in a new life of slavery, where their labor was used to reopen the fountains and reservoirs of water which the life on the island depended, but upon which uh, earlier Bethencourt and Gadifer had destroyed before the island was, had been subdued. So, too, were native Canarians brought from Lanzarote to Fuerteventura, since Bethencourt found that his guanche allies from Lanzarote took themselves readily to archery and warfare exercises against their rivals on Fuerteventura, and when given the opportunity to battle the inhabitants of the neighboring island, the Guanche allies behave themselves valiantly in the Christian ranks against the people of Fuerteventura. They do this daily, and several of them died in the war, fighting for and helping the conquistadors, says the Canarian. The Guanche of Fuerteventura, meanwhile, who had not been captured, in order to face the force which was aligned against them, were forced into mass conscriptions. They mustered all youths of 18 and upwards, so that the war occasioned them great losses. This was so, despite the natives of Fuerteventura having the strongest castles found anywhere on the islands. In fact, Fuerteventura uh, was not, did not have an entirely dissimilar history from that of the Iberian Peninsula of the Medieval Age. 
um, in that the island was divided because two kings made war on each other for such a long period, during which many lives were lost, that both sides had become much enfeebled, and in fact had suffered so much from great losses from internecine wars, that for this reason the island had so many strong fortresses, and a great wall even divided the island down the middle. This leads, lends to the topic of our previous podcast. By the 15th century, the Hidalgos and Fidalgos of Spain and Portugal were engaged in a clash of civilizations against Muslims for roughly 700 years. And you know, what's that old saying? Steel sharpens steel is, I think, what it goes. Um, frankly, they're, they're any king of the old world, Europe, Africa, Asia... They could have, if they had the financial resources to sponsor such an attempt, tried to conquer the Canary Islands. If any one of them had done so, they probably, they would have almost certainly brought iron weapons and a host of diseases to the people of the Fortunate Isles. And as such, they probably would have had some success. Any European king who attempted to do so would have had access to the same ships as the Spanish and the Portuguese. And so they would have been able, if they were able to muster the financial resources, to have, been, to have quickly resupplied their forces on the Canary Islands. But by the 15th century, the warrior classes from the Iberian Peninsula specifically were more practiced in urban warfare than their contemporaries across the globe. They had become so good at this during the next century that when we get to the Americas, we will see that the Spanish are incapable, are excuse me, capable of incredible feats of military and political genius, frankly, when it comes to dealing with other city-states civilizations like that. Now, in fact, if we are to agree with Dan Carlin that cultures can, can build individuals that live within them in such a way to allow these individuals to develop special powers, then I think that the Iberian experience gave the conquistadors a special power. That they could besiege any fortress no matter how impregnable. So, while it might seem a little counterintuitive at, at a first glance, the superior fortresses that the Canarians of Fuerteventura had, instead of protecting them, made them into a target for the Spanish. This is how the authors of the Canarian described the situation at the time. The Canarians, quote, have been obliged to abandon their castles and dare not take refuge in them for fear of being shut in. For, as they live only on flesh, if they were hemmed into their fortresses, they could not subsist, for they do not salt their meat, and it would not last long. Thus, or, excuse me, unquote. Thus it is possible for me to envision an alternate history, where if the people of Fortura, perhaps, had been warring with each other for 700 years, and the Spanish and Muslims instead for 100 years, 
it might have been possible on this alternative planet that Guanch conquistadors might have been using their vast storehouses of the knowledge of siege warfare from their experiences on Fuerteventura to successfully divide and conquer the Iberians. Well, that unlikely, but possible. Now, as it was, the opposite was true, and by November of 1404, Bethencourt had racked up a string of victories against his enemies, which had enabled him to reach back to the husk of the castle Richeraque, which he began to have carefully restored under the supervision of workers, both European and native. Uh, the native uh, workers had been brought over from Lanzarote. Now, during the restoration, he sent the native people of Lanzarote, some of them, and some of his knights to the sea to go fishing, and while there, to also to attempt to bait the Canarians of Fuerteventura into attacking them. This, 60 of them did, very sharply, but the, as the authors of the Canarian write, quote, our people defended themselves so well and so vigorously that they were able to retreat to our quarters, at, which lay at a distance of over two French leagues, constantly fighting with their enemies without loss, and if not for some darts that they had with them, would have gotten off uninjured. Unquote. Now, three days later, Bethencourt again sent out the people of Lanzarote and some of his company out into the field together, and, quote, they had a long encounter with their enemies, where at last those of Fuerteventura were discomfited and put into flight. Unquote. Meanwhile, Hannibal and his men at the other fortress of Balthorhays were not idle. They took some companions from the island of Lanzarote and went out seeking adventures, and I could... Imagine here, we should read adventures, as the text says, as, as, as slave capturing. For shortly afterwards, Hannibal and his men came to a village where they found a great number of natives assembled, and whom they attacked so sharply that ten were slain on the spot, one of them being a giant nine feet high. Now, whether or not the person in question really was nine feet tall, and that seems a little bit incredible to me, and I don't want to get distracted here by that, uh, um, the incident serves to reignite the rivalry that was already existing between uh, Bethencourt and Gadifer, and now is existing between Bethencourt and Hannibal, who, if you remember, is Gadifer's bastard son. Now, Bethencourt had expressly forbid Hannibal to kill anyone. Hannibal argued in return that the giant had been so strong and had fought so well against them that if they had spared him, they perhaps would have all been slain themselves. Now, as it was, Hannibal and his men returned to their dwelling, much punished and downhearted, though I suppose it was some comfort that their raid had netted them as profit 1,000 milch goats. Now, I think Bethencourt's insistence that Hannibal not go about killing the, the villagers on Fuerteventura without his permission has a lot less to do with any humanitarian instincts on Bethencourt's part than it did with his fear that, might, that Han perhaps Hannibal might be able to conquer the island in his own name. Uh, since Bethencourt's own authors of the Canarian Rite, quote, at this time and previously, Gadifer's bastard some and some of his allies were jealous of Monsieur de Bethencourt's people. And further, that they openly wondered what Hannibal's intentions might be if his were to become the stronger party. Unquote. That Bethencourt was not motivated by humanitarian seems pretty obvious, because 
while he is simultaneously telling Hannibal not to attack the Canarians, he is simultaneously attacking them himself. And that leaves him in an uncomfortable situation a bit. Because on the one hand, Bethencourt is, I think, legitimately worried that it is possible for Hannibal to make um, enough progress in his conquests that it would be himself, Gadifer's bastard son, instead of Bethencourt, who ultimately would control the Canary Islands. But on the other hand, Bethencourt, quote, had need of Hannibal and his men, as he was in a strange country, and he was anxious to avoid causing them any displeasure unless there was good reason, unquote. In fact, a few days previously, a great number of Canarians had concealed themselves for the purposes of encountering the Europeans, and had beaten a party of Bethencourt's people, and obliged them to retreat to their quarters with their heads bleeding and their arms and legs broken by stones that were thrown at them. As a result of this, Bethencourt sent out a war party in response to this attack, and the very next, and this happened on the very next day that he had berated Hannibal for attacking the Canarians in similar fashion. And, and I want to take a quick aside here to get into another interesting aspect of the conflict between the Europeans and the Canarians, because while the Europeans obviously have a huge a number of advantages in their weaponry and armor. You know, I'm not really sure that makes them better warriors at all. I mean, Bethencourt's knights were just defeated by these Stone Age villagers here. And, and that forces the Europeans to reckon with the fact that all the Canarians had no other weapons. They were far from defenseless. To quote the authors of the Canarian, in fact, quote, Believe me, they can throw a stone much better than a Christian can, and it seems like a shot from a crossbow when they hurl it and they themselves are extremely swift of foot and run like horses, unquote. Now, Bethencourt and his men found that they were able to easily roust the Canarians from their stone, from their stone fortresses, but that wasn't the same thing as defeating the Canarians completely, who were able to simply just retreat into the mountains after this. Um, the war party sent out to find the stone-slinging Canarians who had just defeated the superior European knights. In fact, took dogs with them as if they were going sporting on the island, which they used to lead them to their enemy at the foot of a mountain. The dogs' ears and noses enabled the conquistadors to prevent the Canarians from springing an ambush on them. And a brief melee ensued, where the conquistadors ran toward the Canarian line, which was moving in to hem in the Europeans. One of the knights rushed forward and closed the last instance, and with a blow of his sword, struck down a Canarian who had attempted to throw his arms around him. The others fled when they saw the conquistadors united against them, and betook themselves to the mountains. The Europeans, though, were completely unable to keep up with the Canarians physically in a chase through the, the peaks, and retreated to their castle. Now, in the aftermath of all of this, Bethencourt sent one of his men, Jean de Jean Le Courtois to Balterhaz to settle things with Hannibal and the other detractors to Bethencourt's rule of the Canaries. The two parties said many things which were not very agreeable, and while the actual text is a bit wordy to get into the exact specifics, suffice it to say that Bethencourt's agents, uh, led by Jean Le Courtois, told the men of Balterhaz, led by Hannibal, that they needed to give up 30 of the Canarian slave workmen who were at Balthar Hayes 
Now, Hannibal's men basically responded, um, no, you can go fuck yourselves. We need our slaves. And also, frankly, further, how dare you, Jean Le Quartois, order me, Hannibal de la Salle, around? Now, Jean Le Quartois replied that, frankly, he could not believe, after all of the treachery that Gadifer had done against Bethancourt, that these men persisted in treason against him today. To that, the most vociferous of Hannibal's crew, a certain Guillaume d'Andrac, responded with the allegation that, in fact, they had not received their fair share of prisoners, and, in fact, Bethancourt owed captives to the men of Balthorhays. Now, Jean Le Quartois, in response to this, laid siege to Balthorhays, just like any responsible would have done in that situation. Now, after a standoff of several days, Courtois cooled off enough to send Hannibal a message which stated that if he wished to end the conflict, all he needed to do was to send all the Canarian women they had. I think that's a reason, perfectly reasonable solution. The best slaves, working slaves, get to uh, stay at Balthorhays. Uh, one of Hannibal's knights, the knight Dondrak, a man who had proven himself on the battlefield numerous times before this, and I'm almost uh, a little upset with myself that I have not mentioned him by name uh, uh, really until now, so you don't have to listen to this aside to understand what a threat he is said by him saying this. He responds to the offer uh, that Courtois makes for Castle Balthorhays to give up all their Canarian women uh, to Bethencourt's agents by saying that, quote, through him they should have none but by force and violence, unquote. When Jean Le Quartois received this reply, he did just that. He made his attempt, and aided by a fortuitous rainstorm, which had a number of the would-be defenders of Balthorhays much more concerned with covering their own dwellings than with the defense of the fortress, Courtois found entrance to the castle easy. Once inside the fort, he was confronted by Dondrak, and the two argued again with swords drawn. One of Courtois' men, a German, our French authors are quick to point out, called for fire to burn the fortress down, and that is a great way to cool down a situation. Now, despite this, no further violence broke out between the two opposing groups of conquistadors, and Courtois thus collected all of the women and other Canarians from Balthorhays and took them there to Lanzarote. Now, if you ask me, the entirety of Bethencourt's conquest of Fuerteventura hinges on that single encounter, not widening into greater conflict. Because shortly after that, the two chiefs of the native Canarians on the island both end up surrendering. And in another showing, I think, of how roughly three-quarters of a millennium of conflict with Muslims have had, had refined, um, shall we say, the thought process of the conquistadors on their ideas of warfare, um, if that's a good way of saying this, is, is, is how cognizant the authors of the Canarian are about how this conflict between Bethencourt and Hannibal could have given 
the Canarians on Fuerteventura the upper hand in the conflict. And I say this because the chief reason for the surrender of the Guanche on Fuerteventura that is given by the Canarians is that, quote, they were unaware of the conflict between the Christians, unquote. Now, if they had been aware of this conflict, I think it's likely that they would have used their influence to further divide, uh, to, to further the divide between the two uh, groups of knights into all-out war. Now, in this situation, it wouldn't have been completely ideal, I don't think, for the for for the Canarians. It, that would have, I mean, the ideal situation would have involved completely pushing the Europeans out of the Canaries. Um, it was still uh, much better beneficial for the Canarians than a united European front under the banner of Bethencourt aligned against them. Now, the Canary did also give another reason that the people of Fuerteventura surrendered, which was that they're te they were terrified of the European arrows, which they themselves were without. And that certainly was uh, a terrifying weapon. Uh, a crossbow bolt is more than capable of penetrating the leather and fur hides, which would have been at the extent of any armament worn by the Canarians. Uh, less likely, I think, though, is the Canarians' third argument for why those of Fuerteventura wished to uh, surrender, which was apparently the native Canarians' near disbelief at, quote, how considerately, unquote, the Christians treated those who surrendered. Um... I mean, I get they didn't make them butcher animals. You know, they didn't make them work as butchers, so maybe there is some truth to that. But the Canarian reasons for surrender on Fuerteventura probably were complex. And, and I think they also definitely included factors like their inability to cope with the uh, disease outbreaks that are not listed by our medieval clergymen authors. And, and whatever that exact mix of reasons is, was, the people of Fuerteventura, quote, began to perceived clearly that they could not hold out for long, and so the islanders decided in council that they would present themselves before the Monsieur de Bethencourt and offer to surrender, and so they sent a messenger to Castle Richeroque. When Bethencourt learned through his interpreter that the Canarians wished to appear before him on pacifistic terms, he was overjoyed and replied he would be rejoiced to receive them with all hospitality." Unquote. The first king of Fuerteventura, who arrived, was baptized on January 18th, 1405. He received the Christian name of Louis. Three days later, 22 more Canarians were baptized, and on the 25th, the king of the other side of the island arrived. He was baptized, along with 47 of his people, who were themselves baptized three days after their king. Then afterwards, Bethencourt had a chapel built, at the court of Balthorhais, which, which served as the point from which most of the population seems to have been baptized afterwards. Since the Canarian states from that point onwards, the people of the island brought their little children as soon as they were born. After this, Bethencourt placed Jean Le Courtois as his lieutenant on the island, and he himself left for France on the last day of January, departing the Canaries for four months. Now, Bethencourt received a hero's welcome back in his hometown, but he wasn't there just to regale his old friends at the local tavern with tales of his heroic, uh, of his chivalric heroism. He also intended uh, to take back with him uh, people of all the different trades that could be uh, found 
mentioned or thought of. Um, he intended to offer them land in the Canaries in return for their making a new life in his colony. And since he was able to find any number of, quote, mechanics who had not a foot of ground of their own, it didn't take long before people of various trades, both married and marriageable, offered to go with him without asking for wages, unquote. Now, in total, Bethencourt recruited eight score people of position, of whom 23 brought their wives. There were amongst them all sorts of handicraftsmen, so that's 160 men, 23 of whom have brought their uh, are married and brought their wives along, unknown number of children. Boy, that's an awful lot of extra guys. I, I think it's fair to say that the fathers on board were probably keeping a close eye on their daughters on that voyage, for to be sure. Um, wait, now, with that settled, Bethencourt bought a ship. I believe he borrowed the money for this, unless it came from Spain. And now with three ships, set sail with his roughly 200 colonists back to the Canaries, and on the 9th of May, with a favorable wind on his back, uh, departed. Now, our clergymen chroniclers report that great celebrations were had on Fuerteventura and Lanzarote upon their return. Um, at the Castle Rubicon, which is where the set ships unloaded their settlers. And, and we don't have the recorded thoughts of these new arrivals, but the authors of the Canarian, and remember, these two guys are servants of Bethencourt, so you can take this all with a grain of salt, they say this, quote, The newcomers were much pleased with the country, which fulfilled their expectations and pleased them the more they looked at it, they ate of the dates and other fruits of the country, which they thought very good, and there was nothing that did them any harm. Indeed, they were very pleased to find themselves in such quarters and felt that they could live very happily there, unquote. Now, I specifically mention that we do not have access to the actual thoughts of the colonists because I'm sure of two things. One, that the colonists experienced a range of different emotions to their new environment and... Two, those reactions probably range somewhere in between the account uh, given by the authors of Canarian and the opposing opinion of, please take me back home immediately. Now, Bethencourt refocused some of his energy on peopling his, his conquest with colonists, but he, he wasn't yet done, anywhere near done with said conquest. Now, when Bethencourt was asked what he was next going to do, he is reported to have replied, quote, It is my intention to go and see the Grand Canary and give them a touch, unquote. Over the next summer, Bethencourt and the other knights debated the best course of action, considering to the best of their knowledge, the Grand Canary contained no fewer than 10,000 nobles who would be aligned against them, and so that this undertaking would be especially dangerous. Bethencourt also put his nephew, Massio de Bethencourt, who had arrived with the, with the fresh recruits, um, in charge of Lanzarote, while he would lead the expedition personally to the Grand Canary. They departed in three vessels on the 6th of October in 1405. Adverse winds, though, sent all three ships off course, and nearly wrecked ashore on the coast of Africa at Cape Bojador. Now, 
Bethencourt and his people decided, well, what the heck, we'll just land here. They remained there a week. Adverse winds be damned. Bethencourt wasn't going to let a little bad weather get in the way of his conquests. Now, Africa was as good a place as the Grand Canary to raid. And in that week, um, he and his men were on the coast of Africa. They took and carried away men and women and more than 3,000 camels. Though these they could not take on board. Um, obviously, that's a lot. And so they just killed and ate that which they could before making their way back towards the Grand Canary. This trip, too, though, did not go as well as planned, and the ships landed at Fuerteventura and Palma instead, before finally Bethencourt was able to proceed at the Grand Canary. Now, when he finally did arrive, uh, several conferences took place between him and King Artemy with the intention, Bethencourt's intention, that is, of giving his men time to recoiter, reconnoiter about the island and to learn um, as much as possible about whatever roads or villages they might spot. So it happened that one of the vessels seemed to have, and, and it just so happened, excuse me, that one of the vessels, the one sent to reconnoiter the island, seems to have contained uh, um, most of the Salwishé most ambitious and competent of the men other Beth Be under Bethencourt's command, and this includes Gadifer's son Hannibal and Diandrek, as well as Jean Le Courtois, amongst others. And these men, full of pride already from their recent campaigns on the African mainland against the Saracens, got a, perhaps a bit too full of themselves. One of the men, a Norman, named Guillaume de Alberbosk, claimed that with 20 men at most, he would cross the entire island of the Great Canary. And you know how knights are. One boast leads to another, and the next thing you know, 45 of Bethencourt's men debarked at a village at the Grand Canary named Argernay. The men drove the Canarians well back into the country upon their landing, but themselves were very disorderly in how they proceeded. When the Canarians observed this want of order amongst them, they rallied and fell upon and defeated them. They gained possession of one of the boats and slew two and twenty men. In that affair died Guillaume de Amberbosque, the originator of the skirmish, as well as both Jean Le Quatois and Gadifer's bastard son Hannibal. The Spanish conquistador Abreu de Galindo wrote this of the battle, quote, The Canarians assembled in great numbers and fell upon the Europeans with great fury and resolution annoying them with stones and darts which they threw by hand with amazing dexterity and with such velocity that they exceed the motion of those thrown from slings and bows besides these weapons they had sticks or poles whose ends were sharpened and hardened by fire betancourt and his men defended themselves with the greatest courage but the attack they had to sustain was so rude and the natives pressed so furiously on them that at length the Europeans were pressed to retreat to the seashore. Unquote. It is likely there that Hannibal and Jean Le Quatois met their end by being dragged from a boat and killed alongst twenty of their would-be conquistador compadres. Now, after this debacle, 
Bethencourt decided, well, that's perhaps enough adventuring on the Grand Canary for now, and debarked with his surviving men and set sail for Palma, that they might uh, regain the honor they had lost. There he found the third vessel, which had never left Palma, and after returning from Cape Bojador, the crew's reasoning being, why not make severe war upon the natives of this island instead, since they were already there and all? Now, Bethencourt found this pleasing enough as well, for he also landed and proceeded to advance into the heart of the island and had several encounters with the enemy there. Five more of his men were killed in these skirmishes, though the authors of the Canarian report that 100 of the natives were slain as well. They remained in country on Palma for six weeks before departing, and from there, still not quite empty of the spirit of conquest, onwards to the island of Gomera, and Bethencourt would try his luck there. The Canarian is completely blank on this encounter, um, and Bethencourt apparently abruptly changed his mind about the attempted uh, conquest of Gomera, but... Lucky for us, the Spanish conquistador and author Abreu de Galindo fills us in as to why. Bethencourt and his men, upon meeting with the natives of Gomera, found that instead of armed with sticks and stones, the people of Gomera, Gomera came armed with darts, lances, swords, shields, and crossbows of their own, apparently spoils of war and trade from previous European attempts at conquest of the island. As a result, Bethencourt and the islands of Gomera lived in the utmost harmony until his departure, says the Canarian. Now, with that said, Bethencourt, his honor bar is still not quite full, and he really wants to fill that honor bar. So he next took his conquistadors to the small and barely populated island of Faro and had his men wage war against the inhabitants there for three months before offering them a peace treaty. Now, the treaty was a trap, and by this offer, Bethencourt was able to trick and entrap the king, his brother, and the remaining 111 inhabitants of Pharaoh. Of these, Bethencourt kept his share of 31 individuals as slaves, the first of which was the king, and then the remaining captives were divided as spoil and sold. Now, as a result of this, the island would have been left completely deserted, says the Canarian, except that afterwards, Bethencourt there established some of his colonists, 120 households in all, which, according to Bethencourt's own servants, was the reason of the devious plot to capture the Guanchin pharaoh was enacted in the first place. Now, once the colonists were settled, Bethencourt laid down the law to his colonists with the following decree that they were to pay nothing at all in tax to him for nine years, which was a concession granted no doubt, uh, ne which was no doubt necessary in order to attract his people in the first place. But at the end of the nine years, they would pay like everyone else. That is to say, a fifth head of cattle, a fifth bushel of corn, in fact, a fifth of everything. This revenue would be split into two portions, one dedicated for the construction of two churches, and his own portion, of which Maceo was entitled to one-fifth of this. Bethencourt also singled out the orchard which grew wild at the island as a product which none on the island was to cultivate or sell because it was so valuable unless they had expressed permission from the crown. 
Bethencourt further stated that the priests of the island would also receive their tithe, but would only receive one thirtieth share instead of the standard one tenth. Um, now, Bethencourt's final, I guess, defeat at the Grand Canary, uh, I guess, finally gave him uh, maybe uh, enough serving of humble pie. Uh, since after setting up this system of taxation, he instituted his nephew Massio de Bethencourt as governor and stated that he would be returning to France. He directed Massio further to appoint two sergeants to each island to uphold Bethencourt's law and also that he desired that the natives be treated with kindness. Finally, he charged his nephew with writing him twice a year to keep him updated on the goings-on of the colony. Afterwards, Bethencourt took two mules which had been gifted to him by the king of Spain and rode about the countryside one last time. He remained in country three months, quote, speaking very kindly to the natives through the three interpreters who accompanied him, for by that time there were a good many who understood the language of the country, unquote. The king of Lanzarote was given a tract of 300 acres in the middle of the island, and the two kings of Fuerteventura were likewise granted 400-acre tracts. All three provinces would owe Bethencourt one-fifth of their economic output, just like the colonists. And, and in so doing this, Bethencourt thus has the distinction of being the first European to create reservations for conquered native peoples. A dubious distinction, I suppose. In leaving, Bethencourt must have been feeling some immense pride and satisfaction in everything that he'd accomplished and gained, but he was also leaving dreams of conquest undone. As he rode through the country, he traveled alongside various masons and carpenters and people of all the trades, whom he explained his plans to before proceeding to Castle Rubicon at Lanzarote and there he left on the 15th of December in 1405. He returned to Europe a hero, and was given many gifts by the king of Spain, including a mule which carried him all the way to Rome. Here, Bethencourt pled his case before the Pope, and as a result, a bishop was appointed over the Canary Islands. Bethencourt retired then back to Normandy, and he continued to reside there until his death, in the year 1422. And thus, the conquest of Jean de Bethencourt came to an end. All in all, a happy ending for an ambitious warlord, which should remind us, if nothing else, that bad people do not necessarily get what they deserve. Still, Bethencourt ultimately failed in his goals, which included the conquests of Gran Canaria and Tenerife, the two largest islands on the chain, Instead, he would settle for the relatively unpopulated islands of Lanzarote, Fuerteventura, and Ferro. Now, the authors of the Canarian are quick to point out that the betrayal of Berthon de Berneval was the cause of Berthencourt's failure to secure the entirety of the Canaries as a French fief. But as I, as I stated earlier, that, that is plainly wrong. To be honest... I think the most obvious reason why Bethencourt failed to conquer the, all of the Canaries was simple. The Guanches defeated him, enough that this victory was made impossible. Still, I guess if you really want to hold my feet to the fire, 
and make me point my finger at a specific failing amongst Bethancourt or the conquistadors, then I will point one squarely at Bethancourt himself. When in November 1403, after a protracted stay in Castile, he managed to secure the title of Lord of the Canary Islands from the Castilian crown. Now, meanwhile, Gadifer de la Salle, in addition to being his partner, who is also clearly his most competent officer, is not given title or any other compensation in the terms Bethancourt had forged from Castile. So in a way, I think that makes Bethancourt guilty of some of the same crimes as were charged of Berth and Berneval. Essentially, that he was cutting his comrades out of the spoils of victory. Afterwards, Bethancourt and Gadifer participated in a, in, a, in a joint attempted conquest of Grand Canaria, but Gadifer grew increasingly irate with Bethancourt that his labor was being wasted. And so he withdrew from the enterprise shortly afterwards, furious that he'd basically been screwed out of everything that he'd been working for by his partner. After the departure of the Monsieur de Bethancourt, his nephew Massio ruled in his stead. But as the influence of Castile likewise continued to grow on the island, remember most of the Europeans who were coming to the Canaries were Spaniards, increasingly these Spanish conquistadors view the French conquistador in charge, and really the nephew of the French conquistador who is in charge, is not really being someone who should be in charge of the whole operation. And perhaps taking, hoping to take advantage of that fact, Queen Catherine of Castile uh, claimed to have become tired of Maceo Bethencourt's exactions and tyranny on the island, and in the year 1414, she sends three war caravels under the command of one Pedro de Barbo de Campos to control him. Now, technically, Maceo was just temporarily in charge anyway. The title to the islands uh, belonged to his uncle, Jean de Bethencourt, who lives on until 1425, mind you. But Maceo could clearly see which way the wind was blowing uh, upon seeing the three uh, warships and ceded the islands to Barbo and himself promptly sailed off. Now, Maceo, uh, once he returned to Europe, no longer under the threat of from Barba and his three war caravels, he decided, but, well, you know, maybe I could still sell the title, which technically I just gave up. And so he does that to one of the princes of Portugal, no less, the Dom Henrique, whom you might know as Prince Henry the Navigator, now, Maceo, he was evidently quite pleased with himself with how well he had done uh, by selling the lordship of the Canary Islands to the Dom Henrique. And in fact, he was so, so well pleased with how well he had done by doing so that, heck, he figured he might as well sell the islands again. And so he did, this time to the Spanish Count de Nieble of Seville. Now, Barba having originally obtained the title from Maceo at gunpoint, also wanted to make some money, and he sold the title of the Canary Islands to a certain Ferran Peraza. Now, do you have all that? Good. Well, if you don't have all that, I don't feel too bad about it, really. 
because Jean de Bethencourt didn't have it all either when he left the islands in his will to his brother, Reynaud. Now, ultimately, if you're thinking that possession of the Canary Islands would provide Spain with a privileged position in the Atlantic, well, you're right. And that is exactly why Isabella took them from Maceo de Bethencourt. Unlike the other archipelagos that Europeans would begin to colonize during the 15th century, the Canarians were more closely connected to the Americas by trade winds and ocean currents. Now, Columbus himself lastly is port in his voyage to the Americas from the Canary Islands, not directly from Spain. Yet, but yet long before the discovery of the New World, the Canary Islands proved to be a flashpoint for conflict between Castile and Portugal. Now, much of this conflict initially stemmed from the belief that Europeans in the so-called River of Gold that they believed flew, which flowed out of Africa, that the Canary Islands would be a great base of operations to explore the African coast for this River of Gold, um, which may or may not have been the same uh, river, which was also the magical upside-down tea that formed the Nile. Um, and this was also going to lead them directly to Prester John, the Christian king of one of the Indias. And, 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 and uh, anyway, we're going to leave off with the story, with the Spanish in the dominant position. But if you think that competition for lordship of the Canary Islands is over, well, then you have not met the Dom Enrique. And if that's the case, well, lucky for you. Because our next episode, entitled The Dom, will let you get to know just such a guy. Now, finally, for the native guanche of the Canary Islands, the arrival of Bethencourt and Gadifer and their cohort of conquistadors signals the end of the the beginning, excuse me, of the end of their sovereignty. Now, we haven't gotten there yet. But after an episode or two, we're going to return to the Guanche and to the Canary Islands, and we're going to detail the wars they go through against the Spanish and the Portuguese fleets who continue to show up on their shores throughout the 15th century. And as we will see, the Canarians of the course of the 15th century will continue to be able to field large armies. In fact, armies large enough to counter and defeat conquistadors in sometimes stunning, thousands of conquistadors in sometimes stunning fashion. Now for the conquistadors themselves, if, the, if they did not perish in the attempt, the conquest obviously meant enormous profits, um, and these could be had via new sugar plantations or by selling enslaved captives. Uh, that much is obvious from our sources. But our sources leave us to wonder one thing about the conquistadors. Many of these men in their early 20s, some of them teenagers, I wonder... How did they live with themselves afterwards? I mean, the 15th century was a vastly different time than our own. It was a time, an age, in which death, even premeditated violent death, was much, much, much more commonplace in comparison to the bubble of safety that surrounds me from my vantage point in the 21st century. But, but despite these differences... 
I, I can't help but wonder about some of these conquistadors of the Canary Islands. I mean, I think a lot of them were, were more like Berthen de Berneval or, or Bethencourt than, than us. And I, but I, I wonder if conquistadors in the 15th century, if killing and enslaving guanches gave some of them nightmares. And I don't want to take my eye off the ball here. I, I think these conquistadors, I think we can classify them as evil people. But with that said, they were still people. Now, and with that in mind... I still, I definitely want to save the majority of any sympathy that we're feeling right now for the Guanch themselves. And to that effect, I want to give us an example of where this is ultimately headed. So let's skip ahead a little to an event that's going to occur on the island of Palma. Uh, on the 29th of April, the year 1483, when in the aftermath of a major Spanish victory, which forces the Guanche tribe of Galdar to surrender their sovereignty to Spain, and in response to this, the young Guanartame, or prince of, 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 the, of the Galdar tribe, in response to this defeat, he went to the brow of the precipice, accompanied by the old Fakag, or high priest, and upon reaching the precipice, the two friends embraced each other, and they called out, Atir Tifma, a phrase which translates as, for my land, in English. After this, both men threw themselves down off the mountain and perished together. So when I say that the chief export of the conquistadors into the Atlantic was human misery. This is what I mean. Total desperation. A woman strangling her own infant in a desperate attempt to escape, capture, and slavery. A prince killing himself after seeing his people suffering a final defeat and realizing that they have lost their homeland and he can no longer lead them. Disease, slavery, and warfare, killing so many that, that if I can use a metaphor here, that, 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 that these factors have cut out so many holes from within Guanche society that the few strands which did remain simply began falling apart because they no longer constituted a piece of cloth. So because of this, that's why I felt it was so important that I begin, that I began this episode by telling you about the Guanche, about who they were. I wanted you to see them, to know them. Because if their lives held meaning, and we can understand that, if we can understand that in some small way, then we can understand maybe what it would have been like to know them. Now I can hear detractors saying 
yawning. Well, who cares about the Guanche? So what? Losers lose. We don't need to know about them. Well, in response to that, I I want to admit something to to you guys. I've struggled with depression my entire life. I don't know what it would be like to lose everything. To have so many people die around me that I could ever feely truly feel how 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 these guanch were feeling. But as many people have, I too have felt the sting of death. I've had friends who were great people. One's name was Mark Borgens, and you've never heard of him. Um, but once in my life, when I thought of myself as nothing but a high school dropout, a loser, He helped me see that I was worth something. He helped me get a job that changed my life. And for this, I'm going to be eternally grateful to Mark Borgens. But he died over a decade ago when he was 22 years old. I have another best friend, I guess is the term I should use, who was a man who I used to spend hours on the phone with him on at least a weekly basis for about the two decades I knew him, which, let me tell you, has really perplexed some of the women I've dated. <laughs> uh, his name was Chris Todd. He died uh, about a month before he turned 33. And, and just like I'll never be able to repay Mark, I'm never going to be able to have another conversation with Chris. I know firsthand that this world can be a cold, lonely, alienating place and while so far this isn't even a comprehensive why I have felt uh, I guess intense depression at times in my life and, and I just wanted to mention that these two deaths are, are kind of part of the complex brew of reasons where there's been several times in my life where, where I've given pretty serious consideration to suicide If the Guanch are losers, I think I'm a loser too. I guess that makes this history a little different than some of the histories you've probably heard in your life. They say history is written by the winners. I don't know about. I don't know about that. Um, and so, and so, I guess this might be a little selfish. But here's why I think this is so important. The Guanch aren't here. But if the Guanch, if if who the Guanch are matters, well, I am here. And if people who aren't here matter, well, then I matter too. Look, and let me promise you something. That if my life matters, well, forever it's worth for you to hear me say so. I assure you that your life matters also. So join me. Let us raise our glasses and salute the people who existed before the end of fortune. Viva La Guanche! Now, I really didn't intend to have this episode end on such a, a somber fashion, but uh, there we have it. Um... Now, if this sort of conversation gets you a little down, 
Um, well, perhaps it might give you a little consolation that in our next episode, um, well, we I said like I said we will be introduced to one of my favorite historical actors, the famous Dom Henrique of Portugal, and I very much look forward to speaking with you again. Until that time, Alf, feed the same. And what I say, the captain is a tyrant and I no longer obey. I'm sick of taking orders from the madman in command. So let's drop him on an island and leave him in the sand. Cause it's a mutiny. It's a mutiny. It's a mutiny. And now we're taking over the ship. It's a mutiny. What's happening here? You're no longer in control And we're drinking up your beer This is now a democratic Egalitarian pirate ship So enjoy your trip Cause it's a mutiny It's a mutiny This is a mutiny And now we're taking over the ship